girl Would you like someone new to talk to Oh yeah, alright I'm feeling kind of lonely too If you don't mind Can I sit down here beside you Oh yeah, alright Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. We've got a brand new Breaking Bad movie to talk about in El Camino. We're going to remember the legendary character actor Robert Forster. We've got new details on the PlayStation 5. And some controversy between Blizzard and China, which I didn't really think we'd be talking about this week. But that's where the world is. How are you doing, yep. Sean? I'm doing pretty good. You know, it's, 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 uh, I'm still extraordinarily busy, um, but I did find time to watch El Camino, and that was very good. So, so yep. I'm glad about that. Yeah, El Camino's great. It's, you know, I think my general opinion is kind of in line with people. It's not the most essential piece of the Breaking Bad canon, but it is incredibly well made. It's really nice to have, and, you know, a better way to spend two hours than most of what you will see on TV or theaters right now. So there you go. Yeah, yeah, that's more or less how I feel about it as well. In fact, I think I probably, in a weird way, have a slightly higher opinion of El Camino than most people, probably because I don't, I'm not like as head over heels about Breaking Bad as a lot of people are. So when people are like, oh, it's kind of, it's unnecessary, but it's good. I'm like, yeah, but it's like really fucking good though. Yeah. Like, I don't really, like, I don't really care all that much about like, the the sanctity of the ending of breaking or anything like that it's like no it's like just like a really good two hours with characters that i really enjoy and that's all i would want from something like that oh i agree and and i as someone who did want more of jesse after the ending of breaking bad Mm -hmm. yeah i'm not gonna go out in there and say like you know breaking bad was incomplete before we got el camino it's not that kind of thing but it doesn't have to be in fact part of what i like about el camino is that it is sort of small scale and it it's not trying to like rewrite the ending or do something crazy with it it's a really solid incredibly well-made epilogue that kind of puts vince gilligan's filmmaking skills and aaron paul's acting front and center and there's not a lot more i enjoy in the world than that so there you go and i'm excited to talk about it later definitely yep all right so we've got some other stuff to talk about uh sean did you wind up seeing joker you said you might um, no, I have not. Because okay. basically, I only would have had time to watch one movie, and I was like, "Well, I'll watch El Camino." Because I don't have to. I don't have to go anywhere. I can just sit down and watch El Camino, and it's like, God, that's so fucking convenient. <laughs> it's just also like, a much better movie than Joker. <laughs> yeah, almost certainly. Yes. So, <laughs> so I spent that time just watching El Camino instead. So I've not seen Joker. Okay, good. Then we don't have to talk about Joker. I do, like, to kick off our stuff portion of the podcast, Sean, I do want to talk about a movie I saw in theaters this week, which is I went to see the new Ang Lee movie, Gemini Man, which is Will Smith um, battling young Will Smith. Uh, there, You know, he's an assassin. A clone of him is sent to kill him. You've probably seen the trailers. Uh, Gemini Man flopped this weekend, and of course, it's got like a 20% on Rotten Tomatoes, so let's just say it has not been well-received. But I was interested in seeing it because Ang Lee shot this movie in 120 frames per second 3D. And you and I are both, I think, pretty fascinated by higher frame rates in film, Mm -hmm. and there's not a lot of it. The big example would be the Hobbit films are the only other major Hollywood production to have shot in a higher than 24 FPS frame rate. They shot at 48 FPS. 
Um, 48 FPS has not really been used anywhere else and is not going to be the industry standard because doing it in intervals of 24 makes absolutely no sense in a world of 30, 60, 90, 120 hertz, you know? Um, So Ang Lee, with his previous movie, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, I think I got the title there, it's a long title, he shot that in 120 FPS as well. I never saw that, and there weren't a lot of theaters that showed it in a high frame rate. Uh, And that was sort of a character drama with some war elements. Gemini Man is a full-on action movie. Um, Gemini Man was shown, so it was shot in 120 FPS, 4K 3D. No theaters on planet Earth can show that, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. is kind of funny. There are 14 theaters in the United States that can show it in 2K 120fps 3D. Those are mostly in New York and LA. I'm not anywhere near one of those. But I was 30 minutes from a theater that was showing it in 4K 60fps 3D. And for me, Sean, and I think you probably understand where I'm coming from, I didn't care how bad this movie was going to be. I wanted to see what that was especially coming from a filmmaker as talented as Ang Lee, mm-hmm. I wanted to to see what he had done with the higher frame rate. And it's really, yeah. really cool. I would highly, highly recommend people check this out. Gemini Man, I, should, I guess I should just first comment on the quality of the movie. Gemini Man is a bad movie, but I found it to be an incredibly entertaining bad movie. This script, which this script has been like kicking around Hollywood since the mid-90s, and you can tell because... No joke, Gemini Man's script sounds like the meme of, like, I had a computer watch 100 hours of this and then write its own thing. Gemini Man is a movie that a computer watched 100 hours of shitty 90s action movies, like Face Off or something like that, and then it wrote a script. That's Gemini Man, and if that sounds fun to you, absolutely go see this movie. There's so much beautifully bad dialogue but it's all delivered by world-class actors. You've got Will Smith as the star. Mary Elizabeth Winstead is the co-star. She's phenomenal. You've got Benedict Wong as, like, the plucky comic relief pilot. I'll watch anything with Benedict Wong as the plucky comic relief. We all love Benedict Wong. Clive Owen is just chewing up scenery as the bad guy. It's great. And, like, you get lines where, you know, young Will Smith, the young CGI Will Smith, is talking to Clive Owen, and he's like, You made a person... Out of another person. And I'm laughing my ass off in the theater because they thought that was dialogue. Or Mary Elizabeth Winstead is trying to explain what's going on to old Will Smith. And she's like, he is you. And he's like, what do you mean? And she's like, he is you. And I'm like, oh my god, they didn't grammar check this script. It's fucking amazing. So it's very entertaining on that level. It really does feel like Ang Lee walked into a studio and said, give me the dumbest fucking script you can find and $50 million because I want to go make a tech reel. And that's what Gemini Man is. It is the dumbest script Ang Lee could find and then spend a shit ton of money just playing with a lot of like special effects toys. So the big special effect is that um, the younger Will Smith, the cloned assassin, is the digital de-aging thing, but done to a degree way more heightened than it's ever been done. Like, the closest would be Sam Jackson in uh, Captain Marvel, but there's mm-hmm. more of Will Smith here, and there's a lot more of just, like, close-ups on him. They've got scenes of him, like, eating ice cream and crying and all this stuff that you would think would be impossible to pull off because it's basically just a CGI character. And I would say 90% of it is amazing and the remaining 10 percent is is doesn't work but like that's a higher ratio than i'd say we've had so far certainly with 
something that is seeded this much throughout the movie. Um, there's there's a scene that's a long close up on young Will Smith as he's like dealing with like inner pain, and it is I, I it's it's genuinely hard to believe it exists in in the realm of special effects. But for me, the appeal was the high frame rate, um, and and basically every scene in this movie is constructed in such a way so Ang Lee can play with the frame rate and do stuff that you either couldn't do before or it just plays very differently. So like, okay, action movies like to have high-speed motorcycle chases. What can we do with a high-speed motorcycle chase if we're shooting at 120 frames per second? Oh, we can do completely different kinds of things with the camera. We can have... Um, these these long takes that go by completely fluidly and just draw you into it in a way that you couldn't in another action movie because motion blur would get in the way. Um, let's have a scene where someone's almost drowning and we're going to make it feel really fucking visceral because water looks completely different at a high frame rate than it does at a low frame rate. Let's have a scene mm-hmm. where a dude's on fire and that's going to just blow your mind what that looks like in 60 fps let's have a lot of scenes that are just will smith and mary elizabeth winstead talking in close-up so we can study what a face looks like at a higher frame rate and it's really really amazing what he pulls off and it is a huge like exponential leap forward from the hobbit movies it does not look washed out um, in the way those movies did. It does not have the same issues with special effects that those movies did. Um, the color balance is so much better. There are some scenes where you get that kind of... It makes you think of sort of motion smoothing on a TV where it suddenly looks like a little too real. But for the most part, it just feels right. Especially with the 3D, which is very seamless because of the higher frame rate. You just There are parts where you feel like you're watching theater almost. Like it's just someone in front of you. The As much as some of the action scenes blew my mind, the biggest revelation for me here, Sean, is that, oh, we've never like sat down and watched someone act at this kind of frame rate. And so there are scenes where Will Smith is just talking and acting and emoting, and Will Smith is a very expressive actor, and he's an actor who we all know very well. And yet, I was seeing nuances in his performance I didn't know he had in him, not because Gemini Man is the deepest stuff he's ever had to play, it is emphatically not, but you are seeing kind of effectively double the performance because it's at 60 FPS, and you're just seeing more of the nuance in his face, and the same with Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and... That's really, really extraordinary, and I think more than anything else, Gemini Man sold me on the idea that we should do more with higher frame rates in film. It got me really excited for the Avatar sequels, weirdly, because James Cameron is shooting those at 60 FPS, and he has said he wants to do a lot of underwater stuff in them, and there are like two minutes of underwater footage in Gemini Man that just blew my mind. And if we're going to get a whole James Cameron movie out of that, sign me the fuck up. This is exciting. Awesome. Yeah, it is the thing that, like, you know, this did not have the reach of the Hobbit movies. So it feels like, you know, I didn't see quite the same level of, like, public disgust at the idea of movies shown at high frame rates that the way that the Hobbit movies did. Um, But, like, the little bits I got of it, like, reminded me of, like, Oh, right, shit. Like, this is what's holding something back in cinema from at least, like, trying it more. Because it feels weird that, like, it's so rare. It's so, so rare yes. for even, like, smaller things to to go for it and, like, to try to be more experimental in that way. Because it we have the technology. Like, we're we're there. Like, we should be able to 
at least give it more of like a full shot and see what like you're saying like what what effect does it have what what changes does cinema have when you show things at higher frame rates because the 24 frames per second thing is completely fucking arbitrary there's absolutely no reason why we should watch things at 24 frames per second other than that's the the tradition because of technical concerns and like budgetary concerns back when film was still a physical thing that you you know played and and watched back so yeah, I, I hope that we get more of this kind of stuff. You know, I I've, I have not and I probably will not go out of my way to see Gemini Man in, in 60 frames per second because, you know, like as I said before, I do not have the free time to just yeah go out and watch movies in the theater, whatever I want right now. Um, but I, yeah, like you said, this makes me excited for stuff like the Avatar movies or anything else that will... Uh, try to push that envelope forward because I want to see people try it and not for us to just be kind of stuck at 24 frames per second for movies just because that's what we're comfortable with. It's like, let's break that a little bit because it's it's cool to see what other things we can make with movies. Yeah, and, and I think what's most interesting is it just, and you see this in Gemini Man, you can't just take a movie the way you shot it and now shoot it at a higher frame rate. You have to be playing and experimenting and doing something actively different. And that's cool. Like, if digital cinema is just... I've said this for years. Ang Lee has said this in interviews about Gemini Man. If digital cinema is just going to try to replicate what cinema on celluloid did, it will never be as good. It can't be as good. The whole 24 FPS thing comes because of you're actually running physical film through a projector, like, or a camera. You have to try new things at a certain point, and this is something you couldn't do on film. It was too expensive, and the technology didn't work. You can do this digitally. Let's play with it. And I think, I am hopeful, if nothing else, those Avatar movies are going to make other people play with this, right? Like, that mm-hmm. is the effect James Cameron has. Like, love Avatar, hate Avatar. What James Cameron does, other filmmakers follow. I am excited to see that. Like, you know... um, what if, you know, Peter Jackson finally winds up making that Tintin sequel he's been wanting to make? That would be fucking great at 60 FPS. You know, what if we start seeing animated movies embracing this more? Like, there's so many places where you could see this done, and it's a really cool idea. So I would recommend if you've got a theater with high frame rate 3D, you know, give it a try. It's I think it's a fun movie in the sense that it is a kind of so bad it's good, but also um, as the, the tech test, it is pretty extraordinary and you know i would like to see ang lee make a real movie again at some point (laughs) because he's pretty much spent a decade just doing tech test movies between this and life of pi and billy lynn but like um you know i i he is one of the best filmmakers out there in terms of just raw like craft skill so if anyone's gonna lead the the way forward on this it's good that he's the one laying the blueprint down absolutely all right, so that's kind of my big piece of stuff this week. Do you have any pieces of stuff, Sean? Um, I've been still plucking away at, at Dragon Ball Fighters and, and playing Gogeta there. The other main thing I've been doing is I finally cracked open my digital download of Devil May Cry 5, which I downloaded must be like six months or something ago, um, to, to put a capper on my Devil May Cry um, journey over the course of this year. I'm about halfway through it. Um, I'm a couple of missions into the Dante section of the game. Um, so that's like mission 11 or 12, I think I'm at, um, out of, I believe, 20. So I'm a good portion of the game, and it's really fucking good. Like, it's just, these games are all, well, okay, 
One, three, four, and five are all fantastic. Two is a Devil May Cry game that is very easy to forget, other than you remember it's going to be sold separately on the <laughs> fucking Nintendo Switch. Um, but yeah, so five is um, like it, it just like it, it. They did not miss a beat between Devil May Cry four and five, even though they're like about ten years apart in terms of when they were made. Um, it is it is the exact same kind of style. Um, so much of the stuff that works with like Dante just works and there's something very comfortable about playing the game and being like oh yeah like this is like my favorite combo with Nero that I used all the time in DMC4 and it just works and then it's like then you get Dante and it's like okay yeah Dante does the three like sword slashes slash pause slash slash like that combo works there's the stinger there's the launcher the guns like the, the core of the characters are still the same um, and so they've kept like the heart of Devil May Cry is still very much there, um, which is cool because it just feels like there's this clear continuity with especially Dante because he's been in all the games of how Dante plays that has carried through. And it's cool to see that even in this generation, at the end of this generation of consoles with that huge gap, they're still focused and concerned about keeping that core of the characters in the combat system what it is. Um, and not like trying to make it more like other character action games that have come up in between then and now, like Bayonetta, Bayonetta and stuff like that. Devil May Cry 5 is 100% a Devil May Cry game, um, and that's a very much a good thing. Um, it's cool because you also, they've added another um, playable character. So you have Nero and Dante, who are the two characters from DMC4. And then now they've added in V, who's sort of this mysterious um, emo guy who goes around and reads poetry out of a book. Um, and he has two demons. He has a raven demon and he has a, like, a panther demon that he summons. And so the thing that's really cool about him is that he doesn't fight himself. He summons these other like creatures that fight for him. So his raven is basically the equivalent of his gun. It's a ranged attack. The panther is the equivalent of his melee attacks. But like you can be standing on the other side of like the combat arena and have the panther be on the other side in fighting enemies, um, controlling them with your button inputs. And so it's a very, very different feeling kind of character while still following the basic rules in like combo inputs that Devil May Cry uses with like the lock on and like forward and back for launchers and stuff like that. And so that's a very fun way to mix it up. And it's shocking how well that character works. Like it's the kind of thing that like I had avoided all spoilers about Devil May Cry 5. I knew almost nothing about it. So I had no idea. I knew that this character existed, but I had no idea he played this way. And had you pitched me this idea of a like pet character in a character action game like Devil May Cry, I would have told you that that sounds like a terrible fucking idea. And it works fantastically. And it's a really great way of breaking up um, the levels between uh, Nero and Dante and kind of giving you a slightly different flavor of combat that plays pretty substantially differently from any of the other characters that have ever appeared in Devil May Cry. And so it, I'm having a really great time playing this game. Like Devil May Cry is a fan-fucking-tastic franchise and Devil May Cry 5 is, like, I'm only halfway through it, but I already know it's one of the best games that's come out this year. Like, it's it's one of, if not maybe, like, the best character action game to exist. Even just, like, me not having obviously begun all the way through it and getting into all the depth of it. Like, it's so clear how much they're building on the foundation of DMC 3 and 4 that if, like, those games are the best character action games I've played. And if DMC 5 is just, well, we did that and we're, like, building more and refining it more on top of it, like, there's kind of no other choice for me other than DMC 5 to be the best one of those kinds of games. And so 
like I think it is with these games all being very easily accessible um, on modern platforms, even like kind of slowly coming out on the Switch. Like there's no better time to get into this franchise because all these games, again, other than two, which you can just easily ignore because it is the most ignorable game in a franchise I've ever encountered. All the other ones are just like A plus great games. So yeah, that's that's what I've been doing. Um, DMC five, two thumbs up. I'm very excited to get back to it. Awesome. Um, how would you recommend people play these? Do you think they should just play all five in in an, in the row? Can they start with a later one? Do you think just go for it? Yeah, I think you can either um, do what I did, and you, I would just say skip two. Don't bother. Like, there's. I mean, if you want to play two, it is a very very quick game to play. But like you don't need to go out of your way to do it. So I would say either do one, three, four, five. Um, or if one is a little bit too old school, if that one like feels a little bit too kind of retro for your tastes, um, I think you could also start at three um, and go three, four, five. I think the the sto- while the story in the game, like the stories in the games are not like amazing stories by any stretch of the imagination. They are really fun and the characters are so much fun. And so, like, I think the three, four, five feel all pretty connected in terms of the story and the way they use their characters. One is much more of an outlier because it was made by a different team. It was directed by uh, Kamiya. Um, so it's, it's, that's a slightly different kind of feel to the story. So you can kind of, if you're interested in the story stuff, you don't need to start at one. Um, but I, yeah, I would not, you know, if you just only want to play five, you could just play five. Like, you know, the stories are not so in-depth that, like, and they're not such an important part of the game that if you don't know what's going on in the story, you're not going to enjoy the game. Um, but I think three, four, and three and four are both so good. There's no reason not to start with those, play those, like, know who Dante is, know who Virgil is, his brother, and, like, kind of go through those stories and, and meet those characters. Because then, like, there's some of the stuff that has been revealed in 5 um, about, like, the nature of the antagonist and stuff is really cool if you have played the other games. And it's, like, it's a, they're, you know, they, they do write by the story with how, like, goofy and over-the-top and silly it is. They, they, it's clear that, like, this team cares about that story and cares about the characters and, like, the very zany kind of world and tone they've built. So I would recommend people um, at least play 3, 4, 5. But 1 is also really fun. And so if you want to go back and, and start there, that is also a good place to go. Awesome. Um, I have two pieces of follow-up before we move on to news from things you mentioned last week, Sean. All right. First, I picked up the Street Fighter 30th Collection because you were hyping it up so much. Mm -hmm. Because it was on sale uh, on Switch uh, at Best Buy, and I picked it up. And I also had a, it was my birthday last week, I had a birthday coupon at Best Buy. So I'm like, yeah, better spend this before I lose it. And then I'm like, this is how they get me to spend money, these bastards. Anyway, (laughs) but I did buy the Street Fighter 30th Collection. That collection is phenomenal. Like, I, that's like the best collection of its kind I've ever seen. It's so easy to just jump into all the different games. You can map all the controls. And then that museum mode, Sean, you're right, it's crazy like like you could always ask for more but i've never seen one that detailed in a collection like this um and and i'm not even a big street fighter guy but i feel like really cool having this like if i want to like learn more and like see the different games and i had fun just jumping between i went like two and then i went to like two turbo and then i went to three and i'm like okay what are they okay i see now they've got this and this and uh it's really cool for a series i don't know a lot about just putting it all on the table like that makes it so much more accessible did you play any Street Fighter 1? 
Not yet. That is, I okay. do want to do, like, try the arcade route on Street Fighter 1, just because I've always... I've never even, like, seen video of that game. I'm so fascinated by it. It's crazy. Like, it is... It is Street Fighter 2 must be, like, uncontestably the best sequel in the history of video games. Because <laughs> Street Fighter 1 is garbage, and Street Fighter 2, like, basically invented an entire genre and is still one of the better games in that genre today. So, Yeah, like, is yeah. there any other example of a sequel that took a game that is universally agreed, and was at the time agreed to be bad, and then made it one of the biggest classics in the like there's nothing else comparable to that right yeah it's it is that thing where it's just like you know growing up i was always just like how come everyone talks about street fighter 2 like it's even you know it's like the movie the animated movie is called street fighter 2 the animated movie it's not street fighter the animated movie it's like why is it why is is what is Street Fighter 1? And, you know, went through most of my life not really knowing that. Having seen, like, a little bit of footage out of curiosity, but this was the first time I'd ever, like, gotten anywhere close to putting my hands on it. And then I played it for, like, one second. I'm like, oh, okay. This is why nobody starts, talks about Street <laughs> Fighter 1. It's, like, it's a good foundation. They came up with, like, this is how you do a Hadouken. But they didn't really figure out how anything else about the game should feel other than, well, if you do down, down, forward, forward, and then press the punch, the punch button, like, you should basically do a Kamehameha. Um, but then they even made that almost impossible in that first game. So, yeah, you, should, like, you should play kudos to them. One. Yeah, but like kudos to them for putting it on the, in the package. Because like yeah. if you, if you want to do the historical sweep of Street Fighter, you got to have it. And I could see them wanting to bury it. And I'm really glad that that collection just, that here it is. And Capcom has been leading the industry on making these collections and putting them out there. So kudos to them on that. Um, and the other thing, Sean, is after you hyped up for maybe the 45th time on this podcast, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, mm-hmm. I started researching, okay, which translation is good? And I'm looking at the books on Amazon and I'm like, oh, some of these are kind of expensive. And then I remembered... <laughs> I work five feet away from one of the biggest research libraries in the country. Yep. They have everything. And I just checked out like three different translations and started looking at them and settled on. I've got volume one of the Moss Roberts translation, which I hear is good. And I also liked reading it a little bit. It's, it's, it's a little more. There's a newer translation by you. It's the Tuttle translation by Yu Sumei, I think. And that one's very dry. This one has a little more, it sounds like, like you know, legendary uh, uh, literature. So I have one volume of it here, Sean. There's, I think, four in this translation. And uh, I'm excited to, to, at some point, I don't know if I'm going to get into it right away because it is a daunting amount of book, but yeah. it looks like a lot of fun. This one has illustrations too, which are great. Oh, good. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. yeah no, Romance Three like, Kingdom. Like here's, yeah. got one of an archer. That's Lu Bu. Okay, There's yes. Guan yeah. Yu. Oh, yeah. Guan anyway. Yu, my boy. My boy, Guan Yu. Yeah, I like having illustrations. So anyway, um, but yeah, that's that's one of the benefits of having a college library. <laughs> yes, no, it is. And, and Romance Three Kingdoms is still, I, that's the best book I've read. I don't, it's it's hard, it's a hard one to top. It is an, ex- it is an extremely impressive book. Um, it is a lot of book, but it is very good. So maybe by the time we reach Podcast 350 and do our top 10 favorite books, I'll have read it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that'd be, yeah, that will be the time when we have like a five-hour podcast. Just like we do our ten through two is just like a normal podcast, and then part two that is just us both talking about *Romance of the Three Kingdoms* for an entire day because that's how much time we would need to cover that book. All right, Sean, let's spend the next twenty minutes on chapter three. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. It's like this podcast episode is about the Battle of the Red Cliffs, part one. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, anyway, I just wanted to let you know I'm, uh, I might be on that bullshit too at some point. I don't know. Anyway, let's go ahead and move on. Do you want to hit some of some, some of the news? Yeah, let's what's what's going on in the world of news, Jonathan? Well, um boy, Friday was sad because I watched El Camino, the new Breaking Bad movie, and this is a minor spoiler for El Camino, but I think it is necessary to properly contextualize this piece of news. Uh in that movie, one of the returning faces is Ed the Disappearer from the Granite State episode of Breaking Bad, played by the great legendary character actor Robert Forster. And I watched the movie, and Robert Forster showed up, and it's one of my favorite parts of the film, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. And then the movie ends, and about an hour later, I'm scrolling through Twitter, and the news pops up that Robert Forster has passed away at the age of 78, on the same day that this, his... I, I don't know if he's got anything else that's like in the edit pipeline, but for now his final film was released, and... Very, very sad. Robert Forster is one of my favorite actors. We've talked about him a lot on here. I think we both love the episode of Breaking Bad he's in. Mm -hmm. Um, We loved him on Twin Peaks The Return, where he played um, Frank Truman, the other sheriff, the brother of Harry Truman, and he was wonderful on that. His best role, of course, is in Jackie Brown by Quentin Tarantino, which I rewatched last night in his honor, and it is still his work in that movie as Max Cherry. He's just it's one of my favorite movie performances, hands down, him and Pam Greer in that. Um, and he, you know, I think you saw the outpouring of love and affection. He apparently was just a consummate professional and a very good guy. Uh, one of his traditions later in life is that when he worked on a film, he would give all of his co-stars these special silver letter openers um, that were like a trademark of his to give to other people um, on sets. Um, he, of course, is kind of the definition of a character actor, which is that the roles I just listed, along with Haskell Wexler's Medium Cool, are probably his most prominent leading roles. Um, Breaking Bad, not a leading role, but the other one are more lead-esque. And for the most part, he would come in for you know five, ten minutes of a movie and leave an impression kind of unassumingly and quietly and then exit stage right and he is just one of those phenomenal supporting actors who you would see in all sorts of things and he always provided a certain kind of you know quiet uh not verbose um you know presence in films and you know i one of my favorite actors i was it it hit really hard seeing that right after el camino um, it was kind of like when Harry Dean Stanton died a week after Twin Peaks ended, and it was just like, oh, but I just saw him on screen. So, yeah, uh, rest in peace, Robert Forster. He will 100% be missed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was, for me, it was, like, especially weird because it, because I was watching El Camino with my dad because we watched Breaking Bad together, and then, like, probably, like, 30 minutes left in the movie, uh, we had, like, a bathroom break. And during the bathroom break, I checked my phone. And then that's when the news had, like, just broken, right, when I checked. And so it was, like, I had literally just watched the scene with him in it and then checked Twitter and then saw that he had passed away, like, minutes. Um, or, like, like the news broke that he had passed away um, minutes earlier. And that it was just, like, yeah, it's a very weird feeling. Like, he's, you know... You you could always tell, like, he's one of those actors that you can tell was just, like, a fantastic person. Like, they just, the 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 charm 
and the kindness that they exude, even when they're playing a character that's not being kind in that moment, in that scene, you can tell how how kind and and just beautiful of a person that actor must have been. It's just that kind of guy on screen that you just can't disguise that ever. Um, and so, yeah, it's 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 sad. Um, great, brilliant actor. Um, and, and yeah, now I want to like go back and, and watch old Robert Forster movies that have stuff with him in it that I've never seen before because he was in a lot of stuff. Um, yep, I've I've also yeah. got Medium Cool here uh, on my desk. I also rented that from the library because I realized I have uh, seen things from this movie, but I've never watched the whole film. And that was kind mm-hmm. of his first Hollywood role. Um, that's kind of a famous like half documentary, half fiction film. Because um, I've mostly seen him. Like in Jackie Brown and post Jackie Brown work, um, so sort of in his fifties onwards. But he he acted his whole life. Yeah. He's actually very similar uh, an actor to Jonathan Banks, another Breaking Bad alum who kind of had a career revival later in life, but had has always been around, like always been working. Um, and yeah, it, and Jackie Brown, man, that is Tarantino's best movie mm-hmm. by by such a long stretch. And I, I every year I get older, the more I I feel that. Um, and God, his his last scene in that movie where he says goodbye to Jackie and they kiss and then he it's it's like one minute of watching him kind of deal with this and then he walks away and and the scene fades out and then it's Jackie in the car singing along to 110th Street. It's just a perfect movie ending and very very hard to keep it together with him having just passed away. Um cuz yeah, Jack, and I loved how like he is totally one of those guys who has at least one universal like Jackie Brown is one of those like legendary performances that when he died everybody is talking about that again. Yeah. Um and it's it's you know, he had others as well, but that is definitely if you've never seen Jackie Brown and you want to see what Robert Forster could do, that that's probably his best role. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we will talk about him more later cuz his role in El Camino is fucking fantastic. Yep. It's it's everything Robert Forster could do well in like ten minutes of screen time. So we will get there. Uh, all right, Sean, you want to talk about some silly video game news? Yes, let's let's transition into the silly news. We've got a good old fashioned video game delay, Sean. Yes, it's been a while. I feel like because we're at the end of this console generation, the video games that normally would be delayed are just not announced yet because they're more for the next set of consoles, and so we're not seeing a lot of these. So it's exciting. Yeah. And most companies have gotten into a pretty good place of just not announcing a date until they're ready. So, like, mm-hmm. Sony does that for everything. Uh, EA, even. Like, they did not give us anything on Jedi Fallen Order until they knew when it was going to come out. Stuff like that. Um, but, no, this is Doom Eternal from id and Bethesda. Was supposed to come out in November. I think this is the one that was coming out day and date with Pokemon. Which would be weird. Now it is coming out day and date with Animal Crossing, which is even weirder, uh, on March 20th, 2020. So a good four-month delay there. The Nintendo Switch version was supposed to come out day and date with PS4, Xbox One, and PC. It has now been delayed effectively indefinitely. They say it will come after March, but no details when. So might be some troubles going on there. But the main game now they're saying March 20th, and some of the multiplayer will come later. So... This, like, you know, this is kind of par for the course five years ago, but it has become rarer to get a delay of this magnitude this soon. I have no doubts that the game is progressing smoothly, but that that this kind of, like, last-minute delay we haven't seen in a while. Yeah, it is, you know, it's it's a slightly concerning, like, I think, you know, I think the game's going to be great. Um, 
is all indications are that it's going to be great it is that like there's a part of me that's like a, oh well that means that now like this fall opens up a little bit more and i can play some other stuff but then i realize oh well shit like stuff like cyberpunk and last of Us part two comes out um in february and march uh for 2020 and then for people who are into animal crossing and into doom they have like a big choice to make um march 20th 2020 uh yeah so you know i'm i don't know what anything else really to say about it i'm excited for that game i hope that these delays are not anything that's like major with the game that's wrong um again it feels like they had been so confident in showing it off that i was like surprised by the delay because usually when we get these delays it's stuff like mass effect andromeda where you're like oh it's obvious that there's a like why this delay happened because they've barely even shown this game i feel like they've been showing significant amounts of footage of doom eternal for like a couple of years at this point so yeah who knows maybe it's maybe it's just performance like the game is done but like maybe there's just areas that they're not satisfied with that would also Mm -hmm. tell me that would also give some um i think explanation for the switch versions delay um it could also be like the the little hints about multiplayer i wonder if they want to like get that going better um no you know november was busy but it's going into pretty much an equally busy (laughs) spot on the calendar because apparently you cannot put out a game for the ps4 past may of 2020 that's just we're done then we're packing it in. Everything has to come out before May of next year. So, you know, we will probably be playing some of these games into the summer, Sean. Yes, well, because for whatever reason, people just like... I feel like it used to be that video games only came out in the fall. And then now we've, like, created this space where video games come out in the fall. And then they come out, like, February, March, April, May. But then June and July are still, like, dead zones where, like, nothing ever releases. Um, I mean, you obviously, there'll be, like, a couple of small things. Like, you, like Nintendo will usually kind of put stuff out in June and July. But, the, but you don't get, like, here's just, like, a big just dump of releases on a couple of weeks in those months. Where every other month of the year, there's, like, at least one week that has a couple of major releases on it. Um, so... Th- at some point, video games will realize you can just release a video game whenever. And if you want... You could delay it to July, and you could just release a video game in July, and there's no other game out, and then people could buy your game and play your game. Um, but but as it works now, June and July are the, like, well, I'll buy this game that's, like, three months old and just went on sale, and I'll play it in June and July because there's no, nothing new coming out, which works out for me. But it's, it, I just always find it funny that they're that's, like, the one, like, video game desert that still exists in the calendar reliably and has for years is the, the June and July months. Yes. So, and and also I think this is interesting to me just because Doom Eternal went from being probably one of the more prominent Game of the Year candidates for 2019 to being, oh god, 2020 is going to be a bloodbath for top 10 lists and we mm-hmm. haven't played any of those games yet. And it's just very clear it's going to be a bloodbath. Yes, yeah. Yeah, like there, it definitely is there, I feel like in my head when this news came out, like the the games like jockeying for different positions in my internal like top 10 for the end of this year they just like breathe the sigh of relief it's like oh okay we don't have to fight doom it's doom is not our concern like Sekiro's like okay i don't there's nothing else is going to compete with me on combat other than maybe dmc5 it's like we don't have to put doom in this bucket too everything else is just like okay this has made some space for things to to move around in absolutely all right But let's talk about why the beginning of 2020 is so busy. It's because the end of 2020, a nuclear bomb is dropping called the new consoles. We have had confirmation for a while that this is happening, but Sony 
did a big um, press release, blog post, and then article in Wired essentially announcing the PlayStation 5. Like, obviously they have talked about it before, but this is this is like a step away from doing the big press conference where they unveil it because they straight up said the console that will be called the PlayStation 5 that will be its official name is launching holiday 2020. They give a couple of other confirmations. They are going with the uh, solid state drive. This is some kind of bespoke custom SSD. It's not um, an off the shelf SSD. It's something they are making in house. Uh, It will ship with a 4K UHD Blu-ray drive, and games will ship on 100 gigabyte UHD discs, not standard Blu-ray discs. So that's nice. That's uh, twice the storage space. Games will still install from the disc, just like they have this generation, but players will have more control over what to install, Sony says. So like Campaign campaign V Multiplayer, for instance, I'm curious to see if anything will actually come of that, because the Xbox has had that this whole generation, and nothing's come of that. Um, The controller will be similar by all accounts to the DualShock 4 but will include new haptics in place of traditional rumble and I think the closest analog we have is something like Switch's HD rumble and it will also have adaptive triggers that can offer different levels of resistance such as um, kind of pulling back on resistance if you're shooting a bow and arrow in like Tomb Raider and then the controller will use USB type C um, which is nice we can get rid of those awful micro USB cables that are impossible to to plug into things because micro USB is the worst port but that's okay um, yeah that's what we know about the PlayStation 5 Sean that's a lot of news yeah no it, it, it it's really interesting the way that Sony is doing this because they basically did the same thing they did earlier this year where they came out with like the here's like our kind of like broad pitch for what the next gen consoles are going to be which is mostly focused on ssd and ray tracing um and there was like you know random other buzzwords like 8k and bullshit like that thrown in there um but it was the most of the ssd ray tracing stuff and and that was in a wired article in a playstation blog post and so they're doing the same thing again and i think it's interesting um, this strategy compared to putting it in an E3 press conference because Microsoft, I don't think, has said really anything about their console other than what they've talked about on E3 press conferences. Um, and then also not putting it in their state of play, their like Nintendo Direct equivalent. Instead, like this like just quiet, yeah, let's just put it out there. Like we're just going to release this information. Um, and I, what I've seen from a lot of like industry people is the probably the reason why they're doing this, and I think this is smart and makes sense, is that each time this has happened, it's been right at the junction when Sony is releasing this kind of information to um, developers and like like more people outside of like just the insiders that are working on the console. So this news came with confirmation that the kind of leaked um, design for the PS5 dev kit. Uh, that that is that is what the PS5 dev kit looks like. It's like this big, weird-looking chunk of tech. Like it's not going to be what the console looks like. Dev kits never look like what the consoles look like. They're much bigger and, and bulkier. Um, but that is those are what the dev kits are. The dev kits are going out to more developers at this point. So this information is going to be more widespread. So it just feels like Sony just saying we you know we've sold almost 100 million PS4s. We're on the top of the market. We don't need to like worry about it. We don't want, like, instead of just having this information leak, let's just do the quiet drop. Let's make a deal with Wired because it's one of the biggest tech magazines. And then let's just put, like, this information that's going to get out there. Let's just put it out there 
and and give like make sure it's it comes from an official source and is like us sort of starting the conversation on the console instead of the kind of stuff that they got bit pretty hard on the PS4 Pro by all that shit leaking so hard so long before Sony was ready to talk about it and they were just sort of like battered in like video game media for several months before they actually talked about the Pro. So this feels like a like kind of response to that and I think ultimately is a cool way of just sort of 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 releasing this information without having to make like the biggest deal in the world about it and like you don't need pyrotechnics and everything to explode when you just say yes the next console is going to be a PlayStation 5 we made a PlayStation we made a PlayStation 2 we made a PlayStation 3 we made a PlayStation 4 if you can do basic math we're just going to call it PlayStation 5 we're not going to do something fucking stupid there's no reason to. It's just the PlayStation 5, and we don't, like, need to assemble 100,000 people in a room to, like, tell you that. Yes, and we don't need to overthink it to death and come up with a name like the Xbox One, which yeah. is nice. Because I'm sure Microsoft, someone in marketing is pulling their hair off figuring out what to call the next Xbox. Because um, they're in trouble. They, they, they really are wishing now that they had went Xbox One, Xbox Two, Xbox Three... But uh, they're not there anymore. So, yeah, I, I think... Because uh, I, I, I gave some of the highlights. Some other things we learned. They did officially confirm backwards compatibility. That was heavily intimated last time. But now just they're saying full backwards compatibility. That's great. We love to see that. Um, yeah, I think the most interesting part of the announcement to me, Sean, is the confirmation about U- UHD Blu-rays. Because mm. that was a big open question. Um, the PS4 Pro did not implement a UHD drive. The Xbox One has it. The Xbox One S and X both use UHD Blu-rays. Not for games, but they can play them as movies. Um, which is funny considering Sony invented Blu-ray and they have not supported the new spec in their hardware. But at a time when the future of physical media is kind of in flux... Knowing that Xbox 2 will definitely have it, and now PS4 is 100% supporting it, means physical media is going to be around for at least seven more years. You and I are both going to own a 4K Blu-ray player, and that's interesting to me. That means, okay, I don't have to buy one until holiday 2020. I'll get the PS5, and I might, you know, for me, I might start, when I'm going to buy a new Blu-ray, I might just start getting the 4K ones just so that I'll have them for later. Um, But it means that physical media is going to be on firmer ground for a while, and I also think it is very smart of them to use the UHD discs for games themselves, because we're already at the point where more and more games are using two Blu-rays. This will ameliorate that. Uh, The big question, I think, is then about storage space and i do want to talk about that and speculate on that a little bit but what do you think about all that yeah like it's it's nice you know i i don't i'm not necessarily like chomping at the bit to start a 4k blu-ray collection or anything because i like for me Me (laughs) blu-rays still feel new they yes it's i think it's just like the nature of us getting older that it's like yeah no blu-rays like that didn't start that long ago and it's like well no uh, yeah the b the ps3 was a blu-ray player so that, that was 2006 so they've been around for for quite a while now um but it is i think i am mostly just happy about the game switching over to um 4k blu-rays because that you know that is a nice way to be like okay you can still buy like Major game releases are still going to be on physical media probably for the entirety of at least the PS5 console generation, um, which is good, especially with like, you know, I mean, games are coming out now that are still more than 100 gigabytes, like stuff like Destiny 
Um, like whatever Call of Duty is coming out, like Modern Warfare for this one, and well, Call of Duty games will continue to have massive, massive data sizes. Um, especially as we move into things having like 4K textures, game sizes are going to get bigger. Um, so like having like one game installation be one tenth of the average data cap um, in America is not great. And it's so, untenable. It's completely untenable. Yeah, it's like the the system's just like like the internet structure is just not built to support the data sizes of games right now. If we're moving, and we are moving more and more into downloadable, um, being the like I think this year is the first year that most markets have switched, or most like major markets have switched to more than fifty percent of major video game releases are downloaded instead of um physically bought, and so we're starting to convert um there, and so. You know, the market is moving that way, but the internet infrastructure has not caught up to that yet because of, like, awful fucking monopolized business practices in America. Uh, So being able to say, okay, if I know I'm going to want this game, I can just get the disc. I can download most of the game data off the disc. There will probably still be a patch. And, again, for some of these, like Call of Duty, maybe, like, the single player is on the disc, but the multiplayer is downloaded or whatever to manage data sizes. Um, But being able to have 100 gigabytes be something that you download or install off of a disk instead of having to download through the internet as someone who has a data cap like that is a relief um and it's nice to be like okay great not every game is going to be like on four fucking blu-rays or something in the future um and i'm very excited to get to the point where games are like regularly released on two different uhd blu-rays and if we are now in the two blu-ray world with like red dead redemption 2 and last of us 2 yes that will be very i don't know what that'll be like but that is a question Knowing that they are 100% going with SSDs and they are not store bought, like this is not like a lap, like the PS4 just has a laptop hard drive in it, you mm-hmm. know? Um, this is a custom bespoke SSD that they are making. Xbox is going to work the same way. There will not be expandable storage for this. You're not going to be able to just pick up a, a hard drive and plug it in. There's a possibility that you could do something like big backups and you could just like move off Last of Us 2 to a hard drive and then move it back on or something like that. But that's pure speculation. How much do you think this is going to ship with for storage? And do you think this is going to become a problem this generation if it is a terabyte standard and that will be less than 10 major games you could have on your console at any given time? I mean, well, it's going to be a problem because it's already a problem on on yes. every device, right? Like memory to storage, like particularly with PS4 and Xbox One, like those default consoles still come out with 500 gigabyte gigabyte hard drives. So, if you know, again, games are already more than 100 gigabytes right now. So if you have a 500 gigabyte hard drive and you want to play Call of Duty and Doom, that is like two thirds of your console's hard drive is basically taken up with that and the fucking UI. Um, so. It is going to be a problem. I have absolutely no idea how much memory space. Like, I want to say at least one terabyte would be nice. Um, I have, but I just have no idea how to speculate on what the size of the SSD would be. I have to imagine the plan is to have it be um, the SSD is where games run off of, but that you have data backed up onto hard drives. Whether or not, like, I think there's a chance that these consoles come with hard drives in them that serve as backup or they will definitely have external hard drives like supported for you to be able to deal with that um because because there was 
significant parts of the article were dedicated to basically without directly saying, oh, SSD memory storage space is going to be an issue with this stuff, um, without directly saying that they put in, they noted things that feel like they are there to try to alleviate those concerns without drawing attention to the concerns because it's a company and they don't want to say these are things that are going to be issues. Um, so them saying, well, we're putting in um, sort of hooks to allow developers to... Um, be more dynamic with with what is installed more so than what the xbox one and the ps4 already do because the xbox one and ps4 already do for some games have you can separately install single player multiplayer stuff or you can choose which one installs first um which that system has never really worked particularly no. well and i've only ever just installed the whole thing and just moved on with my life instead of having to do some weird piecemeal thing it seems like what they're saying is trying to make it so that that is more dynamic and specific and that like part of like what the um, move to SSD will allow is for more sort of direct control theoretically over um, memory and storage space in what parts of games are installed. Obviously, a lot of that goes down to developers supporting that and designing games and like putting in the bits that like allow the the console to distinguish between like, here's the multiplayer part of Call of Duty. Here's the zombies part of Call of Duty. Here's the single player part of Call of Duty. And let me, like, once I... Maybe I never want to play zombies. Maybe I played campaign once and wanted to delete it because I'm not going to play it again in the near future. Um, that kind of thing. So hopefully that is something that works. I, that is very much a, like, we will see whether or not that is a function that people take advantage of. The other thing they said that I thought was interesting was they talked about in the article that the nature of the SSD will enable... Um, developers to reduce like sort of the memory footprint of stuff in their games. Specifically, hard disk drives, you know, are literally disks, right? And so you read memory from a disk like you would a DVD or a CD in general. And so that means that if you have a big game, their example was Marvel Spider-Man. If you have a game like that, you need to replicate a lot of the data and duplicate it in different areas of the disk so that the, the hard drive can access that data without having to like do full rotations. And so if you like, there's like one building model or something in Spider-Man that appears in a lot of places, you would duplicate that data on a lot of areas on the hard drive. So no matter where you are or what you're doing, that that data can be retrieved very quickly. Um, SSDs don't have that concern. And so who knows? Like, I think this is going to be the thing where we're never going to be like conscious of unless there's like a GDC talk that comes out that is about this. I don't think like users will ever be conscious of the fact that this will be a thing that has happened. But theoretically, that will mean that that will like allow us to keep the like ballooning memory sizes down. I think memory sizes are still going to get bigger overall because you're dealing with bigger um, texture resolutions with 4K and stuff like that. But at the very least, like there are things that the technology will allow that will allow you more ability to manage the memory and then also the like things that will allow developers to keep the memory footprint from ballooning more than it already is. So hopefully that stuff alleviates it. I still imagine that our lives are going to be you buy like a two terabyte, four terabyte, whatever hard external hard drive, or maybe there'll be a spot in the, the box that allows you to put an internal hard drive, who knows? Um, and that you will, if you're the kind of person who wants to have your games fairly readily accessible, you have whatever five, six, seven games you are actively playing or, or are likely to be playing, you have those directly installed on the SSD. Everything else is backed up onto some kind of hard drive. And if you, you know, one day you want to play 
some older PS5 game that is on that hard drive. You you move memory around to make space for it. You like move it from the hard drive to the SSD, which would be much faster than installing it um, from or downloading it from the internet. And that would be the solution. Like that's the only thing I can imagine. And I, you know, we'll see it's, if that's the yeah. case. But that's what that's where my mind immediately goes to. It's sad because it's a problem with no good solution. Um, yeah. SSD is where, like, if you're not going to do SSD, there's no reason to do a new generation of consoles. Like, that mm-hmm. is the the reason for this. Like, they gave us a lot of info on the graphics card and stuff like that and the ray tracing they're really making a push for. But, like, that's nice to have. It is not the generational leap, I think, here. The generational leap does sound like it is everything revolving around the SSD and the problem of storage space just there's no good solution especially when you consider this is a fully backwards compatible console and so if you're having storage problems now just double all of that because you're going to be bringing it all over you know mm-hmm. um and physical media can help with this too because you can always uninstall a game and know okay the data is sitting right here on the disk i'm not going to lose like my data cap's not going to be affected if i have to reinstall this so that's all nice um I, I am definitely excited for this, though. And I think what's most exciting is, I think, between the SSD, all the stuff they're talking about with the graphics cards and all the, the, the different things they're trying out here, this console, and I assume the Xbox One, Two, whatever that's called, sounds significantly more future-proofed than the PS4 and Xbox One were at launch. Yeah. Because the PS4 and Xbox One had significant issues with future-proofing in that they launched with sort of sub pc hardware graphics wise and they didn't do 4k support just as 4k tvs were coming out and so that created this big problem with the x and the ps4 pro mid-generation i don't know if they're planning on doing a mid-generation refresh it sounds like that will be unnecessary this time um unless 8k tvs unexpectedly like take off in the next two or three years which i don't think they will yeah, I, I agree. I think these feel like I am very excited about the PS5. I, I, I like the SSD and and the ray tracing stuff because um, if you haven't seen the digital foundry footage um, or the digital foundry video about controls ray tracing stuff, um, it looks fucking nuts. Specifically, like the dynamic reflections of. Um, you know, like video games have always been terrible about reflections and it's, you know, that's why most video games are set in like weird dilapidated dystopias where all the mirrors have been shattered um, <laughs> or or they're just all fogged up inexplicably because it's very expensive to render reflections. And it's one of the reasons why I love a game like Hitman where Hitman's like, nah, fuck it. We're going to do reflections and then we're going to make the AI respond to it because that's very cool. Um but ray tracing allows like really dynamic reflections that do not hit um, your frame rate and stuff like that is hard. And so the video that, that Digital Foundry did on Control, which had all the ray tracing stuff bumped up to the max, showed like dynamic reflections in like the polished metal of like a coffee mug or something or like a coffee canister um, that showed like the protagonist walking around and in real time and like it was a 100% accurate reflection. Um, so if... And and so they said with this PS5 stuff, they confirmed that the ray tracing is going to be hardware accelerated. So there was like some wiggle room. It felt like the last time they talked about it of whether if this is going to be kind of an emulated software solution or if they're going to put active like a chip on the board that would like handle the ray tracing stuff, um, which the hardware version is a much better solution. And they have confirmed that they're going to be doing a hardware accelerated um, ray tracing stuff. And so if that 
if if games are designed to do that, I can see that being a bigger jump up than people are expecting than I was expecting um, before I saw some of the control stuff. Like control on PC, if you have the NVIDIA card that handles ray tracing, seems to be like the like you know the 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 sort of the killer app for that tech because it just that game already is totally gorgeous looking and it does a lot of interesting stuff with lighting and reflections even on the consoles but if other games are going to be able to do the kind of like reflection and lighting stuff that that the pc version of control does on the ps5 like that is that is very exciting to me because i want to see games do cool shit with reflections because it's a really cool visual element that's like movies and stuff do all the time really amazing stuff with with cool reflections um that video games just never do because it's too expensive to duplicate the image um so i I, i'm really excited for basically everything they're talking about and then maybe the haptic stuff will be cool too who knows the controller stuff is very a like we've been sold this bill of goods by so many video game companies so many times about weird video like controller stuff um and it never really pans out almost ever so like yeah i was having a i was having a conversation with my brother about this about do you think they're going to keep the touchpad that they never ever 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 did anything with during the ps4 generation and my brother said they might have to if it's backwards compatible and it's just grandfathered in even though, again, they have never done anything with it. Um, but I do have one other piece of speculation I want to get into, Sean, which is if okay. all of this ray tracing and, and the SSD stuff is as cool a leap as it sounds, then one of the most exciting ideas for me with the PS5 is the backwards compatibility stuff and seeing games in a new light. Do you think the standard now will just be... If, if, like, let's say Last of Us 2, Control, Ghost of Tsushima, all these games, do you think they're going to, like, release, like, Last of Us 2 remastered on PS5? Or do you think they're just going to go with, like, there's going to be a patch that will enhance it on PS5, and it'll be really cool, like, on launch day, you can play Last of Us 2 with these enhancements, and you can play Control with ray tracing, and you can play Spider-Man with all that enhanced load time stuff, because that could be a really cool value add. Yeah, I think, like... I imagine that the SSD stuff would trickle down like I've you know maybe it wouldn't like maybe who knows there might be like weird emulation reasons for why like you would want to sort of like throttle load times or something I you know I'm obviously not an expert on that like in my head it seems like it would make sense that the SSD kind of stuff would trickle down and at least like help the load times if not like make them perfect um for old PS4 games like the ray tracing obviously would be something that you'd have to go in and do work um to to make games compatible with that and build in lighting systems that would work with that um like you know i i think it would be awesome if it was just a patch um i think it would be awesome if you know i had access to like the updated dragon quest 11 s stuff on my copy of dragon quest 11 i don't i i think we're still going to see like here's like the last of us part 2 ps5 enhanced version that maybe you do like a oh if you already have the ps4 version you can get the enhancements for like five bucks or something or like for a cheap or whatever you know like i think that's possible and and i i'm willing to bet it will be like there will be a variety of different ones i think there will be some that like get here's like the patch I think there will be some that here's like the up, like if you can have an upgrade path if you already own the game. And I think there are going to be some that is like pay us 40 bucks to buy the game again. There you go. I think we'll probably see like all of those for different games. It just seems like Sony, first party in particular, has an opportunity here. Yeah. Because 
the big games they've been hyping for the last three years are all coming out at the very end of this generation. Like Death Stranding being the first one up in November. And if one year from now there's a Death Stranding PS5 version that is a full 60 bucks and you don't get it unless you just buy it again, that will alienate people immediately. But if day one on PS5 launch day they say, if you own any of these really cool exclusives we've been putting out, there will be patches that will make them really significantly enhanced at no cost to you, people are going to love that. Like, look at how much goodwill Xbox engendered with all of their enhancements to Xbox One backwards compatible games, right? Like, that was a really cool program. Like, at no charge, they did all of that. And I think Sony has an incredible opportunity to make... Because they will probably have a light launch, because other than the Nintendo Switch, every console in recent memory has had very light launch windows. But if you have... You really, like, leverage that backwards compatibility, you could really make people happy and, like, excited about your console and be like, okay, we don't have a game as good as The Last of Us 2 on launch day, but I can put The Last of Us 2 in there and see it kind of through new eyes. Wow, this is amazing. People are going to evangelize that. So I would say, at least for Sony, I'm guessing they're probably going to lean towards that just because they know their stuff. They've, like, they're putting Last of Us 2 out a few months before the new console. I think they know what they're doing. So that's my hope. Yeah, that's my hope as well. I I think probably Sony first-party stuff will either have the patch or it will be a like cheaper there will be a cheap upgrade path because that was something that some people did like um ubisoft did that with with a bunch of their ps3 to ps4 games like assassin's That's creed 4 um so i would not be surprised to see that happen again um for like here's like your five bucks if you can put you put the disc in you did here's a prompt you can upgrade for five bucks or something i would not yeah. be surprised if we see a bunch of that kind of stuff i'm just curious if like if the architecture of the of the systems is similar enough that let's say the fall 2020 let's say there's a new assassin's creed assassin's creed samurai just let's put that into the world Sean. yeah let's put that energy out there and let's say so that's a fall 2020 game it comes out instead of putting out separate ps4 and ps5 versions there's just the playstation copy of it play it on either one it'll run differently on PS5 rather than having to do the rigmarole of cross-gen bullshit that made no one happy last time. Um, There's a lot of opportunities here that are exciting, and this is going to be a different kind of generational transition than we've had before. So I'm very excited to see it. I mean, this is the first one in a while where backwards compatibility is just an uncontested issue, which is very nice for all Mm -hmm. of us, I think. Um, Because when was the last time that happened? PS2? I mean, the PS3 started with it and then got rid of it very quickly. Yeah, I mean, because this is just like the first time in at least a very long time, if not ever, where all the consoles are in like a sort of like hardware parity, right? Like they're all using AMD tech for their CPU and GPU. Um, They're using the same basic architecture. So there's no like weird cell processor or power PC shit that people are playing with. They're all like on the same fundamental um, platform. And so... You know, when, once once backwards compatibility becomes very cheap to do, everybody's going to do it. And that's the situation we're in right now. Yep. All right. So let's move on to our final piece of news for the day, Sean. And this is a heavy topic. I wasn't sure if we should talk about it, but it became such a video game story. I think it's worth commenting on. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to run through what I've written up like and researched and then we can react but i wanted to do this justice and try to like give as much context as possible so 
This week, Blizzard suspended pro Hearthstone player Blitzchung for a year and took away prize money after Blitzchung made a pro Hong Kong freedom statement during a Hearthstone tournament. One week later, this was uh, two days ago from when we're recording, Blizzard course-corrected, returning the prize money to Blitzchung and reduced his suspension from one year to six months. Blizzard President J. Allen Brack insisted the penalty was due to Blitzchung using political speech at all, which was a uh, supposed violation of terms of service, not because of any relationships between Blizzard and the Chinese Communist government. This comes on the heels of the NBA, the uh, Basketball Association of America, freaking out over Houston Rockets DM Daryl Morey making a pro-Hong Kong tweet, which sparked a, uh, let's just say, an international diplomatic incident. That would not be an understatement. Um... Uh, on Friday, Riot Games forbid League of Legends pro players and com- commentators from making any political statements whatsoever while broadcasting. Riot, of course, is a wholly owned subsidiary of Chinese mega corporation Tencent. Uh, one of the only strong voices in the industry that has been dissenting and being not like slavishly pro China was Tim Sweeney and Epic Games. Tim Sweeney is the head of Epic Games, and he tweeted uh, while this was all going down that Epic supports the rights of Fortnite players and creators to speak about politics and human rights. This was kind of interesting because Tencent, that same big Chinese company, is actually a 40% shareholder in Epic. So uh, Sweeney was asked about this on Twitter and said, Epic is a U.S. company and I'm the controlling shareholder. Tencent is an approximately 40% shareholder and there are many other shareholders, including employees and investors. When asked by a fan, can you honestly say that if a similar event ever happened, you wouldn't have to sever ties with said influential figure, i.e. the NBA coach, Uh, Daryl Morey or the Hearthstone champ Blitzchung. Sweeney responded, yes, absolutely. That will never happen on my watch as the founder, CEO, and controlling shareholder. So Epic at the moment is kind of the only big company like this with Chinese ties that is making strong statements about freedom of speech. Otherwise, the NBA had to walk back, but they've been having problems. Blizzard had to walk back, but they are still very clearly not wanting to lose all that Chinese money. And this has really shed a light on a problem that has been going on with American media and American international companies for decades now, but I think is under the light, especially with the Hong Kong protests, which... If you've been following any world news, I am sure you have seen um, Hong Kong is both a part of China and not a part of China. This comes from its colonial history, and it is supposed to be an independently governed entity, but there have been efforts by the Chinese communist government of the mainland to intrude upon Hong Kong more in recent years and months, and this has sparked mass protests that are continuing to this day, Uh, and it's made it very difficult, I think, for companies to uphold both American values and have smooth relations with the Chinese, thus leading to everything we're seeing right now. Is that a good overview of the situation, Sean? Yes, yeah, as good an overview as like can be provided for what is a what is like probably without contest the most complicated thing we will talk about ever on this fucking podcast. Um, yeah, this could be an entire podcast series, let alone a ten-minute discussion on our dumb show. Yeah, so 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 one thing I, I just want to sort of like state this at the top here is that if you want to listen to a conversation about this that is like politically informed, but is also coming from like the video game 
like media perspective and like the video game side of the story, I would listen to um, the most recent episode of Waypoint Radio with Austin Walker, Patrick Klepek, and Rob Zachney. They know a lot more about this than either of us do, um, and they talk about this. And it's like it's like an hour long conversation. It's the bulk of that podcast. It's very good and it's very interesting. Um, it's an interesting conversation because they look at it from um, a bunch of different angles. So, like one thing about this that is interesting. Um, I mean, I think this whole scenario is is just like fascinating. It, I find yes. it utterly fascinating. I don't, I can't think of anything else that in the history of like video game media that has felt quite like this. Um, that has like so baldly exposed a corporation for being a corporation. You know, like it, it's that thing of as soon as the sort of like bottom line, as soon as the 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 profits of a company are threatened. Like everything else, just like like for Blizzard, just got completely stripped away and abandoned, and they made this like very knee jerk kind of response um, that bit them in the ass, at least like from the American like public point of view. Um, and then they released what was like a totally unsatisfactory, bad fucking like I mean what like their statement just sort of like more or less just lied multiple times, them saying like oh this was not like if. We would have done the made the same response, whether like any political statement made on our students, like no fucking come on. We know why. Like it's obvious why the response was as quick as it was and was as severe as it was. It was like the specific context. Um, and so that's like one thing to always keep in mind is that corporations are not your friends. Um, they will not uphold your ideological values. Corporations do not have ideologies. They exist to, you know, create profit in a capitalist system. So don't don't rely on Blizzard to, like, back you up or be woke or fucking whatever companies try to do with their, like, Twitters and shit like that. Because that's not how it works. Um, you know, so, so that's, like, one... That's, like, for me, the easy takeaway from this without having to, like, get into the muck of, like you know, the American, like, the racist responses that this has because of, like, elements of, like, our relationship to China and the way that right-wing politicians have jumped onto this scenario as, like, an easy win to back up their, like, what is mostly, like, anti-Chinese rhetoric that is comes from a racist place or comes from a place of desiring a, like, return to the, like, uncontested American hegemony in geopolitics. Like, that, there's, this is a fucking complicated goddamn issue. Um, for me, the easy, com- the, the easy response that avoids all any of, like, having to deal with those issues is fuck corporations and fuck this bullshit um, and... Fuck this bullshit. I guess this yeah. is my is my, my number one response. Yes, although this is also, I mean, this is a this is one of those problems without a solution, like yeah. on a much bigger scale than the dumb SSD thing. But it is a problem without a good solution because China is the biggest country on planet Earth. It will soon have the biggest economy on planet Earth, and by some measures, might already. Um, but currently, most traditional measures would still put the United States at the top, but China is nipping at our heels and might overtake us soon. We are currently in a trade war with China, which complicates a lot of stuff, but that is, you know, probably temporary unless Trump becomes president for life. But in any case, um, the problem is the United States and China are the two biggest countries in the world. We are competitors, but we also have to work together because the alternative would be bad. And we have diametrically opposed ideological viewpoints on the world. 
the United States has freedom of speech, it has freedom of religion, it has freedom of the press, it has a lot of things that the China, it is built on, and I know the United States does not fulfill those every day in every way, obviously, but those are our guiding philosophies in our founding documents. The Chinese Communist Party is the opposite of that in a lot of ways. It is a an authoritarian government that restricts freedom of religion, press, speech. So... This is an issue if you are going to be a big international company doing business in both the United States and in China. And while I think like what the NBA said was completely inexcusable and maybe a, a, a level of, of shittiness even higher than what Blizzard did, both Blizzard and the NBA, I kind of – fuck corporations, yes – but there's also this weird bind here where if you want to be a big company and have a transnational market, you have to have the U.S. and China. Basketball is hugely popular in China and in the U.S. Video games are hugely popular in the U.S. and in China. So either you say we can be perfectly ideological pure here and just cut off that market with a billion people or we're going to have to try to walk that line. And sadly, there is no perfect way to walk that line because this is a literal rock and a hard place that is impossible to figure out the distance between and at that point then you do fall back on what you said sean which is corporations are not nations they are not ideological bodies they cannot be ideological bodies and so the nba and blizzard's initial responses were just knee-jerk shit this is going to hit our bottom line let's kowtow to an authoritarian and that is a very bad look but it is also again an impossible scenario to navigate so i hope this doesn't sound like i'm coming off as like sympathetic to corporations but i'm just trying to explain the nuances of like this is fucked and getting light shone on this right now i think is important for everybody because this is going to be something we'll be dealing with the rest of our lives mm -hmm. and it's going to get worse from here so buckle and the fuck up and and yeah and it's like something i think that is important also to point out is like this is something that the rest of the world has been dealing with for this like the entire 20th century and for most of the 21st century now as far as we've gotten into it but from the us doing it to other countries so like as china gains more of a sort of cultural um hegemony in the world in in their kind of like cultural imperialism becomes more and more powerful they're going to slowly start taking the over the over the U.S. in that regard. In the U.S., has been the most powerful, dominant global cultural force that has we have forced our like ideological and um, sort of like cultural perspectives and beliefs to on the rest of the world to the advantage of the United States, right? And so this is like one thing to keep in mind. Like, not necessarily that this, I don't know if this, like, is to, like, change your, like, the actions you take in your life in response to this kind of stuff. But just to be, like, aware this is not a new problem just because we're experiencing it for the first time. This is something that if you are very frustrated and upset about these kinds of things happening to American companies and American products and American people, understand that we have been doing that to the world for a very long time at this point. So it is, it is, this is not new. This is just a different form of a problem that has existed for this entire stretch of like human history for the past hundred years or so. I mean, I, not to try to like erase all the bad things that have been done in the name of American imperialism. There is something scary and I think understandably scary about this level of cultural hegemony being attached to an oppressive authoritarian regime that does change the game a little bit. But yes, I mean, this is, this is the fascinating thing about China right now is it is 
overtaking the U.S. It's it's doing like this full, you know, the the bridge and road plan that is basically a full version of the Marshall Plan, but by China, not by the United States. And the Marshall Plan being one of the most important things that built American influence around the world in the 20th century. And they're doing that throughout Africa and the Middle East. So, yes, I mean, this, this stranglehold is going to get bigger and bigger. But as we've seen in Hong Kong, um, there, it's not going to be without pressure points because this is, uh, you know, it is a, you know, China is a complicated situation. Because it is an authoritarian regime where a lot of people are doing just fine under it, and they are obviously suppressing stories of those like the you know like the Uyghurs, um, Muslims living in in China who are not doing so fine under it. Um, to to say the understatement of the century, like I said, this is a bigger topic than we can possibly get yeah. into. But yeah, I mean, it's this is once it's touching our stupid basketball and stupid video games and stuff like that you know you can tell it's a big problem yeah it's like it's not it's not going to go away um like this is going to continue to be a thing um and so yeah like i guess we have to get used to it and start like dealing with like coming up with ways to deal with this and to understand it and and like i and again i think like the important thing to keep in mind is that the goal is not to restore American cultural hegemony. It's to eliminate like um, capitalist cultural hegemonies around the world because, you know, China is not actually communist in that sense. So like the, the like, so this is why like the, one of the ways that this becomes complicated is I do not want to just sort of jump on the same kind of bandwagon that people like Marco Rubio jump onto with this stuff because it scores easy political points with their base and because it speaks to certain values of the, the political right in America um, that I do not agree with. And so, yeah, that's, that's for me, like the, the bigger picture perspective is like, don't like, we don't want this to be a thing where we're just tipping the scales back to America. The ultimate goal is like to destroy the scales. Right. And so that's, that's something that I guess yeah. I have to keep in mind. Like, it's like the larger political, motivation behind this for me at least sure but i also think like the reason i included tim sweeney's statement here sean with epic games is that that's the right view to have because like if you're gonna do international business like this it is i think better to try to have some kind of set of values that you will stick to consistently and put that out there and say that's what we will do china can take it or leave it because I think a lot of American companies react in such a way as if they are the only stakeholder here who has influence. And that is a weird thing to do because if you have companies internationally just continually rolling over to the Chinese, that's going to quicken the the rate of Chinese cultural hegemony throughout the world. If you have you know a company that if the NBA had just come out and said, you know, we don't necessarily endorse this, but we are, you know, our players and our managers can say what they want to say. That is, you know... And and that is something the NBA has done a good job of in in the United States versus like the NFL in recent years, for instance. The NBA has been more supportive of players being politically active. And that they failed doing this on the world stage is just going to make it easier for China to bully them the next time this happens. So that's why I wanted to include that Tim Sweeney statement because that is something you can totally do is just say, this is how we will treat this if it happens. And the ball is then in your court well, China wants the money too. China benefits from having basketball and video games in their country. If they didn't, they wouldn't fucking be there. So, like, this is this is all worth keeping in mind, I think. Yeah. I'm curious to see, like, should Epic run into 
this scenario whether yeah. or not they will actually follow up on that like that is you know yeah mm-hmm. don't no of game, course yeah, but yeah don't put your faith in corporations is the, don't the, put your faith in easy takeaway don't put your faith in corporations but i do think someone getting out ahead of the field and and planting a flag of like this is what we aim to do is is commendable in this moment when i think people are trying to find a way forward because part of this is just Apparently, I think a lot of corporations not having planned for the inevitable moment when this happens. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like have a plan and a set of values in place and then stick to it is going to be a much, much better and more uh, tenable course of action than not doing that. And not that, you know, we are experts at running Fortune 500 companies, but I think that's just like a good guide point in life as well, you know? So, yeah, whatever. Um that was that was a heavy topic. Do you want to move on to a silly topic? I yes, but before we move on to what I think the silly topic you you want to move on to, I want because I will be like two minutes before we started recording the podcast, I watched the Doolittle trailer. I want to okay, I, wanna, I did too. Yeah, you I want to talk, talk about, about that? that. Yeah, let's 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 lighten the mood before we go into our main topic. Because what the fuck, dude? Why are they making another Doctor fucking Doolittle movie? Who do you want me to give up quick- with that? Do you want me to give you a quick cinematic history of this? Yes, please do, because I I tried to look into it, and then the podcast, you, you emailed me the link for the podcast, so I had to stop. Yes. Okay, so really quickly, so th- we are talking about the new Robert Downey Jr. movie called Doolittle, which is a adaptation remake of the musical film from 1967 called Dr. Doolittle, which was based on a series of books by a British author named Hugh Lofting that are very racist and outdated, kind of famously colonialist in a lot of ways. The basic idea of Dr. Doolittle in its variations, because there was also a version in the 90s with Eddie Murphy, um, Dr. Doolittle 1 and 2, and the thing that connects them all is it is about a man who can talk to animals. Um, and the the Eddie Murphy one, essentially that's the only connection it has, and then otherwise it's completely different, like it's an American dude, obviously. Um, they didn't have Eddie Murphy do a British accent, although that would be funny. Um, because otherwise, Dr. Doolittle is usually kind of British upper class. The musical in 67 is one of the most infamous film bombs of all time. Uh, it starred Rex Harrison, who you might know from My Fair Lady. He's the dude who always speaks, sings, and is kind of annoying. Anyway, they spent... 17 million dollars on that movie in 1967 which i know doesn't sound like a lot today but just do the math in your head that was a lot of money it made back nine million dollars and nearly bankrupted its studio 20th century fox it was a it was negatively received it spent years in production it was just a giant fucking disaster um and that has been kind of the legacy of dr doolittle um people that the movie kind of came into prominence recently as a meme on twitter um this, this woman who, I follow her, I should know her name, but she tweeted out a, a scene from Dr. Doolittle where in the Rex Harrison movie, he has a seal dressed up as a woman and he sings, he serenades the seal and then throws it off a cliff into the water. And it is one of the funniest things ever to happen in the history of film. That is the one yeah. good moment in that movie. That movie is like notoriously bad. It was one of the big musical bombs that kind of nailed the coffin shut on the American film musical as it once was. That and Hello, Dolly were probably the two big ones in the late 60s. So fast forward to twenty to the 2010s, 
and every corporation in Hollywood is trying to find, fuck, what IPs do we have to fight Disney, basically, right? Mm -hmm. And so everyone's trying to do the IP wars, and somewhere, someone hits the bottom of their barrel and gets Dr. Doolittle out and says, well, this has never worked for anyone else except the time we did it with Eddie Murphy. Let's do it not like the Eddie Murphy one, let's do it like the Rex Harrison one. And then I assume somewhere in the background a lightning bolt went off and someone started playing an organ and they were initially, immediately cursed because Dr. Doolittle is a cursed property famously in Hollywood. They cast Robert Downey Jr. They started making this movie. This movie shot years ago, Sean. Like, I would have to look it up. But, like, this movie shot back in, like, 2016 or something because it has been a complete disaster trying to make it, which we could all have guessed. Um, they had to do, like, months of reshoots. They brought in a different director, all this stuff. Um, and, yeah, then finally today they, they kept pushing the release date back. It finally uh, is coming out in January 2020, which tells you the studio has a lot of confidence in it, Sean, because they're putting it out in January. Uh, and then finally, we got a trailer today, and it is one of the worst movie trailers I've ever seen, although very entertainingly so. Yeah, and so I had no fucking idea that this movie it existed i had no idea like it, it part of it makes sense because we have had this rash of like bringing back early 20th century british kids books as movies where we started with the um the wonderful wizard of oz movie the great wizard of whatever the fuck that one was oz the great and powerful yeah, yeah with james franco they did that one um we we brought mary poppins back they did a winnie the pooh one recently um, somewhere in there, there is that weird, um, like, Peter Pan prequel with yep. Hugh Jackman, so, which has that one great clip where, are they singing Smells Like Teen Peace Spirit? They're singing something. Yes, like, they are. They're singing they're, Nirvana, yeah. Yeah, so look up that clip, like, Hugh Jackman, Nirvana, Peter Pan on YouTube. It's a fucking great clip. Um, it's how Captain Hook is introduced singing Nirvana, and they don't do that at any other point in the movie. It's very weird. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's a great idea for a terrible movie. Um... I, mean, I haven't seen the movie. Maybe the movie's great. It's no, it's terrible. Done. It's yeah. it's one of the bigger bombs of the decade. But it's it's a very fun scene. But yeah, so like, but they, the point is, they've been bringing all these properties back from that, like the kid, the British kid story from the early twentieth century. One of them being Doctor Doolittle. But Doctor Doolittle is like the redheaded stepchild of the early twentieth century British kid stories. Nobody cares. Nobody's ever really liked it. Like, it's just never been particularly successful. The only thing that Dr. Doolittle has is that it's got a really good name. And that's it. There's nothing else for that property other than, I get like, someone talking to animals. You can make a good story out of someone talking to animals. But that's, you know, that has nothing really to do with Dr. Doolittle. That's just true of, like, there are many characters throughout history that have had that power. So it's Yeah, like, and I should say, those books were not considered good or popular when the musical was made in 67. Like, these are not Sherlock Holmes. These are not, like, beloved as original texts. Like, it's better known for the bad movies than even the bad books. Yeah, exactly. Which which is different than, you know, Hundred Acre Woods stuff. It's different than Mary Poppins. It's different than um, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Like, all of those original properties are beloved or were beloved in their time, even if they're not commonly read today. But so Dr. Doolittle, it's just funny that like, it feels like this like weird hanger on of like Hollywood saw this trend. They've been spending like the better part of this decade jumping onto this trend. And so then of course at the, in the twilight hours of this decade in 2019, 
what hopefully is the last one of these <laughs> is is fucking Doctor Doolittle, and then the trailer is like beat for beat the most cliche ass movie trailer from 2019 you could possibly put together, like complete with the like thing at the end of the. I mean, one it has um like the haunting cover of. Um, somewhere over the rainbow is that the one for this one? It's it's what a wonderful world. What it's, a wonderful world. Yeah. It's what a wonderful world for this one. Um, and then at the end, you do here's like our star-studded cast, one line after the other. Most of the, the only reason being because half the characters are just voiced um animals. So like, of course, you get John Cena to play Yoshi the polar bear, and like Tom <laughs> Holland is in it, and it's like. You just get, like, here's, like, our, like, cast of people that we just, like, pulled into a reporting booth, like, five years ago. Like, right when they kind of, like, got big or something. And then made them record, like, seven lines. And then you could put them in your, like, in, like, you know, the prestige gold text that pops on, like, really quickly in beat with the song. And there's, like, three screens of it. It's like, oh, it's like a joke trailer. It's like someone made, like, a joke fucking fake stock trailer for saturday night live or something and they just actually are making a movie yep uh sean what accent is robert downey jr doing in this trailer because i can't figure it out i think it's supposed to be scottish like that's it's it sounds vaguely scottish or or northern english like you know there's a because we know he can do a perfectly fine british accent from the sherlock holmes movies it's not great but it's fine you recognize it as sort of a central london british accent i have like maybe scottish maybe i almost it sounds a little irish in parts like it's very bizarre uh the whole trailer is sort of edited to make it... Like one person on Twitter, I think it was with Drew McQueen, he said, it looks like the movie should have been called Saint Doolittle, because that's kind of how it's... It looks like he's going to like get crucified at the end of the movie for speaking to the animals. Like he's being built up so much in that trailer. Um, my biggest thing with this trailer, Sean, is this movie took years to make. It cost $200 million. It's got a fucking Avengers-level budget. That's some of the worst CGI I've ever seen in anything, is in this oh, trailer. It's, it's very bad. Yeah, yeah. That polar, that polar bear looks like the polar bear from the Golden Compass, which didn't look good when the Golden Compass came out. I, yeah, I think like part of the thing is that it just feels like they didn't decide whether they wanted it to look like the new, like you know, Lion King type of, or like Jungle Book of like very, very realistic, or if they wanted it to be more exaggerated and cartoony, more like I don't know the fucking. Or it's kind of like Golden, the old Golden Compass movie or something like that, where it's more a little bit ridiculous and cartoonish. And it's in this weird, very bad middle ground where it's like they look relatively realistic or they're going for realism. But the way the animals move and they like talk and sit around, they are not at all like actual animals. And so they didn't decide in one direction or the other. Um, and then the execution, regardless of like the direction, is still poor. And so it is a very bad confluence of bad things around that CGI and that fucking trailer. I mean, here's the thing. If this were an SNL parody trailer, Sean, it would go viral as fuck because it's a great parody trailer. It's just a very bad trailer if you want a real movie. And man, this movie... So this is Universal. Universal is going to lose so much fucking money on this. I mean, Jesus. Because it's... They will have to make back at least probably four to five hundred million just to break even on this thing. It probably doesn't break 200 million worldwide. I mean, this this is going to be a bomb. It it is kind of interesting. Robert Downey Jr. 
really has not had a hit outside of the MCU. And I think it speaks a lot to movie stars are not really a thing anymore. People like the characters movie stars play. But like just because you take Robert Downey Jr. and put him in another role, if it's not Iron Man, that doesn't automatically mean people will go see it. We've seen this over and over again. The only semi-hit he had was Sherlock Holmes. And I think he's made a lot of bad choices, too. I think a lot of his non-Avengers movies have been pretty poor. But it's it's definitely going to be a test now that he is definitively done with Iron Man. Can he have another hit? Um, I would like to see him transition more into, you know, sort of smaller art house filmmaking and yeah. see him stretch those muscles because what does he need the money for? But we'll, we'll see. I, I don't think this is probably the best way to start his post-Avengers career. Yeah, no, it's it's... It's just like it is a just laughably bad trailer for like what is just an obviously awful fucking idea to do with a movie for like it it is just that thing where Hollywood just wants it just needs IPs. And so it's just, you know, and, and it's already spent all the like meaningful IPs of the 20th century. It's spent all the meaningful IPs of the 20th century about halfway through the 20th century. So now they're doing them for a second time. Except for, no, now they're doing it for a third time. And so it's like, if it didn't work the first time, it only kind of worked the second time, but had nothing to do with the fucking source material. Nobody even likes the source material. Nobody even remembers that the source material. Like, most people probably don't even know or have any conception of Dr. Doolittle having been a series of books at one point. Um, the idea that, that that then somehow bolsters your movie or gives your movie some kind of, like, leg up in the market because it has the Doolittle name attached to it, is so, like, classically Hollywood, not how anything ever works. Nobody gives a shit. Uh, but, like, but but somebody could make the pitch just because it had the word Doolittle attached to it, right? It's, it's so funny to me. It is very funny. Well, do you want to move on and talk about a really, really good movie? Yes. Now it is time for us to talk about El Camino, or El Camino, however you want to pronounce it. A Breaking Bad El- movie. Yes, so let's talk about El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie. Spoilers from here on out if you are worried about that sort of thing. This was such a treat, Sean. Mm-hmm. I it's think that's the good. best way to describe it. It's just a fucking treat. It is, yeah, especially like if you have any love for Breaking Bad, I think it scratches every Breaking Bad itch you might have. Uh, and I think it, you know, it, it carves out its own space as well. So I think we gave general reactions early on. Um, where do you want to go with this, Sean? Like, where should we start talking about El Camino? Um, I think just like, let's start with, um, like how it like hooks up to the ending of Breaking Bad, because one of the major sort of like criticisms I've seen of the movie is like people saying it's like, well, it's nice, but it's like unnecessary. And I mean, I guess I agree that it's. It you know you Breaking Bad does not need anything additional to bring its ending to a conclusion. Like Breaking Bad is or was primarily Walter White's story. Walter White's story is concluded very definitively at the end of that show and very very well. Like it's a great last like season or last half of a season, whatever the fuck um, they did with it, and then great great finale. But especially like the last three or four episodes of Breaking Bad are all time um, end of a show kind of episodes. Um, and so you do not necessarily like have to have something set after Breaking Bad um, in the way that there are other shows that like, you know, I would say that Twin Peaks season two needed something else like Twin Peaks season two stood on it like on its own. 
it's not like a great finale to that show, but because season two of Twin Peaks is like that. And so Twin Peaks, like, there is like stuff to do. And they like, it, there's lots of, there was lots of space, whether with Firewalk With Me or The Return. That was an ending that was not final to me. Um, Breaking Bad, they wrote the ending of that show. They got the ending they wanted. They were not like pressured to end the show early or anything like that. They got to do it. Um, but to me, there is, there is only one significant flaw to the ending of Breaking Bad. And to me, it is how they deal with Jesse. And it is like the Nazi characters. Um, I've never felt that that was a like fully realized part of that final season. And it's one of the things that like the first half of season five kind of fucks around a little bit too much. And then the second half of season five is a little bit, is like really compressed because of it. And it felt like, Jesse's story gets so compressed um, as soon as he gets taken captive by the Nazis and you don't get to like have really much access to his character anymore. And by that point, he was so firmly a co-lead um, that them kind of having to abandon Jesse a little bit in that last season and having to kind of like a little bit manufacture this like new set of antagonists with the Nazis um, to make up for Gus Fring's death. Like that never was like totally a smooth transition i felt and in particular like it always felt like there was something missing that like we 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 lost jesse a little bit too early in the last season of breaking bad for my taste and so that's the hole that el camino fills it's not necessarily like this is something that definitive like needed to exist to satisfy something burning left unanswered by the end of breaking bad but it is for me a really really nice resolution to a character arc that I thought they did a decent job of in the ending of Breaking Bad, but not as good as what the rest of that finale cleans up. Um, and so El Camino does serve for me, someone, you know, who's not the biggest Breaking Bad fan of the world, but liked the show quite a bit. It does answer something for me that I did want ultimately that I don't, didn't think I realized I wanted as much as I did until I started watching this. I agree pretty much completely with what you're saying, Sean. Absolutely. I think like like the Nazis in season five and six, which is what I will always call them, um, in seasons five and six, I think work on the level of yeah. they are a different kind of villain and they are there to bring home the utter darkness Walter White has wrought by like dealing with these guys. And I think they work on that level perfectly. But if you take the character who was, as you say, pretty much the co-lead, like seasons three and four in particular, Jesse probably has as much screen time as Walt, if not more, in some parts of the show. Um, and if you take him and have him be captive, but we don't see a lot of it, and he gets away, but we don't really get a denouement from it, then it does feel like it's just a little tiny bit out of balance. And I think what... Because El Camino, I think the other complaint I've seen people have is that it feels inessential because, you know, El Camino, the, the series ends with Jesse driving away on the run and El Camino ends with him still driving away on the run. And it's like, one, that's a really dumb literal way to look at it because yeah. Vince Gilligan, it's not a mistake, the last shot of El Camino, guys. Like, that's a specific, that's called a contrast. That's called a dramatic contrast. But anyway, but I kind of, like, there is a part of me that would like to see the movie set 10 years later where Jesse is living in a small Alaska town and see what his life is like. But accepting that they probably weren't going to do that for obvious reasons. Um, and I don't think this would necessarily be the time to do it either. Um, I think what El Camino offers is not a replacement for Jesse's ending, but a refinement of it. And that's mm -hmm. the whole point of this movie starting and ending on shots of Jesse in a car driving to destinations unknown. 
Because at the end of Breaking Bad, we have a character who feels like the guy driving away has been through stuff that we mostly didn't get to see. The Jesse driving away at the end of Breaking Bad, we don't fully know that guy anymore. Because his experiences in the last three episodes are so extreme, I'm not sure what to make of him. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then at the end of El Camino, though, I know I feel like I know that guy very well again. I know him as well as I did in seasons three and four. And I know what's in his head this time as he's driving off. And I don't know what his ultimate fate will be. And I think that's as it should be. I think Gilligan's instinct that this is not going to tell you the rest of Jesse's life. It is to refine that ending and say, okay, we're still going to end with Jesse driving away to places unknown. But this time let's do it and really feel like we know that guy and know how he got there and know his experiences. And give him an ending, I think, pretty comparable to what Walter White got on the show. Because Jesse deserves it. And Aaron Paul, the actor, deserves it. And I think the movie totally proves its existence that way. So when I say it feels a little inessential, it's just in that sense in that this is not... It's it's honestly very similar to Felina, the final episode of Breaking Bad. The climax of Breaking Bad is Ozymandias. And even with El Camino, the climax for El Camino is still Ozymandias. Because that is still the big thing Jesse is reeling from, is that episode. But Felina is sort of like a detailed coda epilogue for Walt. And this is a detailed coda epilogue for Jesse. And along the way, you get a lot of great little performances from returning players. And a lot of phenomenal tension that Breaking Bad does so well, and a couple of neo-Western scenes that just knock your fucking socks off. So, totally worth it to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I I have a very strong preference for long-form storytelling like TV shows and books for the extended ending. Like, you know, that, that should be obvious. If you listen to our Return of the King podcast, that should be obvious that we are full in on, like, yes, like, if you've spent a long time with these characters... You needed to spend a long time settling them. And it was particularly for Jesse. We just so thoroughly lost access to him as a character because it wasn't just that we didn't spend a lot of time with him in the last few episodes, or particularly the last two. It's that we, like, the time we didn't spend with him was time that we knew that he was being literally chained up and tortured by Nazis, which is so extreme a thing to happen to one of your main characters for us to have no insight in at all. And part of that, I think, was um, probably, like, you know, for the TV show, like, at a certain point, there was only so much you could do because it's, like, it's very dark material. Um, but then also there's just, like, there was not enough time to balance it with where Walt was because they kind of, they sort of ripped themselves into the corner a little bit by putting Jesse in that situation. And so having this movie just sort of, like, it makes me feel, like, better overall about, like, the total Breaking Bad experience which which is what I think this movie, like, it fulfills that purpose, like, really well. And it is a purpose to be su- fulfilled. But then also it is just a really, really, it's a really entertaining movie on its own. It's, it's very funny in places. It's got lots and lots of great tension, as you said. But it also does have, I think, a really strong character arc of its own about someone um, sort of dealing with and trying to overcome this extreme trauma they had and to also like have like find power and confidence in themselves again, which is to me what like Jesse's main arc is, is going from someone who is totally broken at the beginning of this movie from the ending of on breaking bad and becoming someone who can sort of 
be an agent in the world and make their own choices and be comfortable with themselves in at least some small way. Um, and that's where Jesse is by the end of the movie. And so to me, like the movie has a very clear character arc that Jesse goes on that is extremely satisfying. Oh, absolutely. I agree 100% with that. Um, I kind of want to start by talking about the flashback structure of the movie mm-hmm. because it's sort of two big stories in one. It is the very, very Breaking Bad-esque. Jesse has a problem. He is the most wanted man in the United States of America. How does he get the fuck out of Albuquerque? And we go through that in excruciating detail, step by step, which is what Breaking Bad was always really good at. It doesn't skip the in-between steps. Other crime stories skip. So it does all of that. But then there is also this very meaty other half that is a series of flashbacks. There's one elongated one with Todd, the the Nazi played by Jesse Plemons. And then there are other ones interspersed with other characters. But I think, you know, the big flashback that comes back several times with Todd is the space where we get the greatest sense of what happened to Jesse in that Nazi compound. And I think part of what was smart about kind of waiting the six years and then doing this separately is I think Gilligan found the right headspace to be in for those scenes because if it was just a series of flashbacks of like Jesse being whipped and tortured I don't know if we need any more of that and it would be very sad but doing it as a Jesse and Todd on the road story and seeing just how fucked up Todd is as this person in the world and how fucked up Jesse has become as his like play thing allowed for a lot of like Cohen-esque dark humor And then on the other hand, I think in the scene with the gun in the desert, a really solid punch to tell you what Jesse is fighting to overcome in the present day story. And I think that is one of the smarter moves the movie makes. And you have to wait for it because it's very slow, but it's the good kind of slow. Yeah, and it's a structure that I am like fond of in stories. Like I love that sort of parallel storyline with like the kind of the flashback thing where the connections between what is happening are more implied and not and less like directly stated kind of thing. It's more of like the thematic connection between them Um, because it is like, that is also where I think the, the Todd character works the best for me in this movie. It's one of those, like, you know, the, I think it's very hard for a TV show to have an antagonist like Gus that, you know, maintains through basically two seasons with season three and season four um, where he's a major player. And then season four is the Gus season, but he's in the show earlier than that. And he's so, such a powerful character, so charismatic, so kind of all consuming of your focus that when he died, he he left such a massive vacuum. And Breaking Bad had never had that before. It had never really had, here's like this big antagonist. It had smaller characters like, was Tuco in season one or whoever, that are like smaller antagonists that like work for those seasons, but they're not like, it didn't have like the big bad structure of a Buffy or Justified, which is another big comparison point for me. And we'll talk about Justified again when we get to the shootout at the end. Um, But justified like established itself definitively as each season has this villain and so the show was built to create a charismatic villain deal with the charismatic villain and then in the next season do a new one and breaking bad never had that and so once your gust dies in breaking bad how you fill that vacuum was something that they did a very admirable job of but never quite nailed it to me um, and part of it is that like Todd is like a very weird character that is not who you expect him to be. Like you don't quite expect him to be this like 
just empty sociopath um when you meet him and he's a great character but he's kind of hard to kind of get a handle on or i felt when i was watching breaking bad um whereas in this movie those flashbacks do such a good job of getting like okay this is why this guy is scary he's different from the other kinds of characters we've met because he's so empty inside he's such a fucking like like egotistical sociopath that has no concept of other people really mattering um so he will just kill his cleaning lady for something totally like innocuous that she does not need to be killed for and he's not going to care about it and he's so confident in his complete control over jesse that he's not even really concerned when jesse gets that gun like that's an interesting character that that is there from the character from breaking bad but he's much more sharply um drawn for me in this movie um and and those flashback scenes were some of my the best parts i thought of el camino they were definitely some of the most surprising because I love Jesse Plemons as an actor. He's great in everything I've ever seen him in. Um, classic in Friday Night Lights where he also for one season became an unrepentant sociopath. That's a little... Friday Night Lights fans get it. Um, but anyway, like I think he was really good on Breaking Bad. I did not go into El Camino feeling like I can't wait to see more Todd. I was definitely fine if we never saw Todd again. But I, but I need more. Like that, that, by the time we got through El Camino, I'm like, okay, I did need more Todd. I just didn't know it because like Gilligan did find a very different register, not a different, but like a refined register yeah. for him to play here. And I think Plemons got to do easily the best work he's gotten to do in the Breaking Bad verse. Um, even though like it is slightly distracting, Jesse Plemons does look aged in this compared to he, he still had a very boyish look in Breaking Bad, and they couldn't quite like recapture that. But that's just time ravages all um yeah and, and i almost still... i almost thought that like his older look like i think kind of sold the character almost more i agree me. yeah like he he looked more like the guy he's supposed to be here than like i think that's one of the reasons why his character in breaking bad is hard to get a handle on is that the physicality of todd never fully communicated like the weird psychology of that character whereas here he yeah. totally has this like coen brothers villain look to him as well as the behavior Oh, we need a Coen Brothers crime movie with Jesse Plemons as the villain. Yes, uh, We need that badly, mm-hmm. yes. But if we don't have that, El Camino will certainly suffice because those scenes are great. And, and yes, he is fantastic. Aaron Paul, like Aaron Paul, man, he, this is a three-course meal of a performance because in this movie, he gets to do basically every single register of Jesse Pinkman at one point or another. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way he plays it in those scenes being... I mean, it's kind of weird. It's There are moments in that that are just full-on comedy routine where I guess Aaron Paul is the straight man, but the comedian is like a weird emotionless sociopath. So you'll have like, you know, you know uh, Todd pointing out like the body and being like, yeah, it's a sh- I didn't want to do it, Jesse. And, and like it's very like very darkly Cohen-esque funny. Or I think the best moment is probably Jesse having to drop the body off the... Uh, off the side of the building mm-hmm. and Todd is there waiting for it. Um, or of course the most like darkly both funny and disturbing scene being, and I used this as our theme song this week, uh, Todd singing along to Dr. Hook mm-hmm. on the radio while they're driving out to the desert and just like, it's just all pitched so well. And then I think reaches as this own little contained story, such a good punch when Jesse gets the gun at the end and Todd talks him down pretty effortlessly and you see that that jump between how broken jesse was and how unbroken he is becoming because it's also very smartly intercut with the story in the apartment 
where it then climaxes with Jesse getting out of the, the, the problem with the two police officers or fake police officers through just sheer force of will. Like, point the gun at my head, pull the trigger if you want, I'm taking this fucking money. And just that study in contrast is so beautifully done. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it yeah. is It is a great part of the movie. And that the, the scene when Todd is in the car and the, like, how long they hold it on you only seeing him in the driver's seat and like the the movie implication being that Jesse would be in the passenger and they hold on that for so long before they pan over to the passenger seat is empty cut to Jesse being in the trunk with the dead body fucking perfect such a good just like bluff um really really well done Actually, while we're talking on that, you know, I want to take a little break from story stuff to talk about the aesthetics of this movie because mm-hmm. it's a gorgeous movie. Yeah. It doesn't quite look like Breaking Bad, which is interesting to me. It um, This was shot... So this one, this was shot in widescreen for the first time. It's actually Gilligan always wanted to shoot Breaking Bad in widescreen as the story, but they wouldn't let him for the show. Um, so Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul have always been shot in traditional 16 by 9, and I think to fully great effect. But he finally got to do it in big widescreen here. Breaking Bad was shot on 35 millimeter. Um, and definitely when you watch on the Blu-ray, you really, it's so gorgeous on 35. By the time they did Better Call Saul, that really wasn't viable anymore, both for costs and then just there are so few labs that process film anymore. So I was really curious going into El Camino how they would shoot this because there's one scene in Better Call Saul that is set during Breaking Bad. There's one cold open they've done, and they specifically shot that scene on 35mm to make it look like Breaking Bad. And so they've had a very clear aesthetic signature that Better Call Saul looks like this, and Breaking Bad looks like this. And El Camino winds up looking like kind of a mixture of the two because it is shot digitally. It was shot on the Ari Alexa 65, which is a really great camera, um, kind of like the digital equivalent of having a nice like 70mm lens. Um... And it is so shot digitally, it has more of a digitally processed look to it, sort of like Better Call Saul, but it emulates a lot of the shooting techniques of Breaking Bad a lot more, even though it's got the Better Call Saul DP did this movie, not uh, Michael Slovis, who did Breaking Bad. So I found that interesting, and certainly... Um, some of the different like vistas they get, like the opening scene with Mike by the river is just unbelievably gorgeous. I think all the stuff out in the desert, they always do desert stuff good on Breaking Bad. But then also like some of the compositions, like all the stuff in Todd's apartment, which takes up like half the fucking movie is mm-hmm. in that apartment. And they make it such a good playground for tension and like the production design of the apartment once Jesse has torn the whole thing up. It's uh, It's aesthetically quite compelling and like, Obviously, you would expect that from the Breaking Bad people, but I do think it's interesting to look at. Yeah, no, it's it's a really it's really gorgeously shot, and and it is especially like those big vistas, anything in the desert. That's like that is Breaking Bad is like here's like like a couple of people in the desert um, with like a car. Like that is like half of like my memory of like good looking stuff in Breaking Bad is here's like two dudes in the desert with a car. Um, yeah, it is. All throughout, really, really gorgeously shot. And there's just, like, some, like, really interesting... They go, they, they do some, like, interesting compositions the way that Breaking Bad would and, like, weird things of the... It's, like, the standout one is the weird top-down shot of the apartment that all of a sudden makes it look like they're playing some fucking, like, Hotline Miami-ass video game <laughs> and, and Jesse, like, moving between all the rooms super fast. Um, so, like, it, it's, it's inventively shot the way that um, Breaking Bad always was. Yeah, and it feels... It does feel like kind of a... 
not that there's much of a gap between Breaking Bad and a movie, but like this is the movie version. Like it definitely yeah. feels expanded to a certain degree. I really, really hope we get a Blu-ray of this because the Netflix stream just isn't good enough for all the low light scenarios in this movie because the Ari Alexa is really good at low light photography, but digital streams are really, really bad at rendering low light photography. And so there's a lot of just like I noticed on the Netflix stream kind of messy, blurry macro blocking in a lot of like, I noticed it in the apartment scenes and then at the end with the big standoff. And it's just like the photography in this movie is too good to keep on Netflix. I, I need my Blu-ray and I hope we get that relatively soon because, you know, I just rewatched the last season of Breaking Bad again to prepare for this on Blu-ray. And that, there's just it, there's miles of difference between Blu-rays and digital streams for this stuff. Um, and I hope we get that for El Camino because, God, it, it looks good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's, let's talk. Um, while we, we talked about the flashback with Todd, do you want to hit some of the other flashbacks we get with other characters really quick? Sure, yeah. So you have the the opening of the movie is a fun little flashback with Mike from near the end of Breaking Bad. And they're, it's a good, um, it's a really good setup for the ending of that he wants yes. to, like, how is Jesse going to get out? Where is he going to go? Mike isn't the idea of going to Alaska. Um, and it's, it's just, you know, as someone who has not seen Better Call Saul, I've been away from Mike since I watched Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. So it's just like a, yeah, fuck yeah, Mike. He's great. <laughs> yep. Hell yes. Give me more Mike. Mike. Mike, this was fun because I don't know about you, like with a lot of the actors in this movie, there was an initial shock of like, they're older and there's nothing wrong with that. They can't fix that. But like, you know, Brian Cranston looks a little different mm-hmm. and Jesse actually looks pretty much the same because he's in so much makeup for all the scars and shit. But, like, everyone else looks a little different. Mike, I've I've never stopped watching Jonathan Banks as Mike because he jumped right out of Breaking Bad into Better Call Saul. So, for me, that was just an easy, like, yeah, that's what Mike looks like. And he's looked like that forever, apparently, because Better Call Saul is set ten years before Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had fun kind of seeing that. Um, I think that is supposed to, I don't know if that's the exact location where Mike dies on Breaking Bad, but it's clearly supposed to evoke it. Yes, yeah. And I think that scene is supposed to be set in the episode Say My Name when they're on their way out to the desert for Walt to do his big Say My Name speech. And then at Mm -hmm. the end of that episode is when Mike dies. So there's also kind of an added poignancy that that's probably the last time Mike and Jesse had a conversation together without Walt in the room. Yeah, and Um, Jesse and Mike always had such a great relationship on the show because he's sort of like Mike's protege. Um, I do particularly like the line that Mike has about something of like, you know, oh, if I was a teenager, blah, 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 with all the money in the world, I would go to Alaska. And I'm like, teen, teen, teenager. Teen, yeah, teen, that's like one of those where it's like, right, Jesse's supposed to be like 19 or 20 or like whatever. Of It's like, you know, Aaron Paul reads much younger than he is, but he is like 40. <laughs> He's, he does not look like a fucking teenager. As someone who now works with teenagers on a daily basis... <laughs> no definitely not yeah. a teenager i mean it's worth remembering like breaking bad started in 2007 it is set it ran for s- seven years six seasons and it was supp- and it, it the timeline of the show only advances two years so he is only two years older than he would have been in the pilot of breaking bad but aaron paul is indeed sean this year he just turned 40 in august so he is quite a bit older than he's supposed to be. But yes, that is funny. I do like that line from Mike, though. And I also like, and it's kind of the thesis statement of the movie, when Jesse says, you know, I'd like to make things right. And Mike says, in very Mike fashion, there's no making this right, kid. 
but maybe you can start over. And I like that as the thematic kind of guide for the movie. Yeah. It's such a good scene. Um, we have, who else do we, I mean, there's characters obviously we see in the present day stuff that I want to get to. Like they do such great stuff with Badger and Skinny Pete. The kind of bookend to the Mike scene though, is the scene with Walt at the end. Yeah. And I was, I had not seen any spoilers on this. I was very curious if they were going to get Brian Cranston back and they did. And that is one of the best Walt and Jesse scenes in the entire series is what we got here. Yeah. It is really impressive. I mean, you know, again, it's pretty obvious that, you know, it's Brian Cranston looks older. Aaron Paul looks older. Like there's only so much you can do. Um, but in terms of the performances, it was like frightening how on point it was for like season two era Walt and Jesse um, before mm-hmm. shit, before Jesse becomes like a drug addict, before Walter's just like just murdering people left and right. And it's like they're still human, like relatively relatable human beings at that point. They've done some awful shit, but they're not kind of like over the edge at this point. Um, and seeing another scene with those two. Um, and how just how perfectly they recapture that dynamic um, in like the writing of that scene is so sharp. The performances are just perfect, like note for note, absolutely perfect. Um, it is like crazy how uncanny it feels just on like a performance level. Um, that that was like I was like with you. I had no idea whether or not while Brian Cranston was going to come back. I thought that they as soon as I saw that they did a flashback with Mike, I was like they're okay. They're they're breaking that seal. I don't know how you would not do at least one scene that had Brian Cranston in it because it's fucking Breaking Bad and it's Brian Cranston. Um, but I'm glad that that's the kind of scene they chose to do. Was here's back when they were like fun and they could joke with each other and they had like what felt like a legitimate healthy relationship. Um, and you saw and you can see the seeds of how the relationship becomes as toxic and destructive as it becomes. Um, particularly the like Walt's last line of that scene is perfect of him saying like how lucky you are that you didn't have to wait your whole life to do something great. And then Jesse looks at him like the fuck are you talking about, dude? We've already murdered like two or three people at this point in the story. Like we've melted bodies in acid, you crazy old man. Um, but, but like, you know, it, it has that warmth that that relationship had in the early parts of the show. And, and with the little seeds of, oh, this is going to go bad. It's going to break bad eventually. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. So this scene is supposed to be set, I think, during the Four Days Out episode from season two, which is the first Michelle McLaren episode. And it's the one where they get stranded in the desert because the battery dies on the RV. Mm-hmm. All-time great Breaking Bad. Yeah. And... If you have not seen Breaking Bad in a while, that is also a period in the show where Walt is pretty sure he's going to be dead soon. Yes. So, like, you get that feeling there. I, there's a very nice moment where Jesse says, no matter how long it takes to sell, I will get your money to your family. They, they had that kind of camaraderie. And so Walt is also in kind of a more reflective mood. I also think it's important that this is before Walt kills Jane. This yes. is before he, he ultimately betrays Jesse. And I think for most viewers of Breaking Bad... That is the moment where Walt goes from anti-hero to unsympathetic monster is uh, letting Jane die. And, of course, it is the moment that in Ozymandias he uses to, like, stab Jesse in the fucking heart, you know. And so this is one of their last nice interactions with one another. And I think putting it at that bookend between Mike 
at the beginning and Walt at the end is is beautiful. And then having Jane come back for the final scene of the movie, where it's just this also from a season two episode where they're they're driving. This that was the episode where I think they go to see the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum, which is always a funny thing to remember Jesse did. Um and and you know they have a, a beautiful moment there too, and and just all these different people Jesse was touched by for good or for ill, and how much that is informing his current experience. Because every one of those people in the flashbacks is dead. He's the last man standing. Yeah. You know, yeah. Jesse is pretty much the only Breaking Bad character we see in this who's still alive, <laughs> because uh, Skyler and Walt Jr. don't make an appearance. Yeah, I, there should have been like some flashback about like one time when he like went over to Walt's house when he wasn't supposed to, and Skylar answered the door. It's like, who the fuck are you? Katie's like, uh, sorry, must have been the wrong house. Uh, and then he just leaves. Like they should have just had thrown in a couple of those. That would have been very fan servicey, but I would have enjoyed it. Um, yes, or like he runs into Marie at the grocery store. <laughs> Yeah, no, he's just like walking down the sidewalk and in the background, Walt Jr. is also walking down the sidewalk from two years ago. (laughs) Or like they're both in an arcade playing Street Fighter. Yeah. And he's like, and we get a good, yeah, bitch, there. We didn't get that in this movie. But um, yeah, so you have all of that. um, Very, very, very strong use of flashback structure. I think we can all agree. Also, I have to say... um, uh, a plus use of the facial hair on Brian Cranston because his again he looks a little older, but they got the like wispy season two mustache just right, mm-hmm. yes. which is good. Yeah. This is season three is when he gets the full villain goatee. So yes. Anyway, um, let's talk about the other half of the movie though, the present day stuff. It obviously starts with Jesse getting away from the compound and he goes to hide out with Badger and Skinny Pete, who kind of steal the show in the first half hour. Badger and Skinny Pete, I always liked when they showed up on Breaking Bad. They're not the most essential characters, but they're very funny. I really liked them here. Those were really good performances by those two guys. Yeah, it's it's you know, they were always like the comic relief on Breaking Bad in they're they're funny here also but they have they get more of that like they do really look out for each other and they are like actually friends kind of thing and that's always yeah that's a good thing to have in your like dour um heavy you know two hour coda to um breaking bad is like let's like the real camaraderie skinny pete he's a good dude skinny pete is is awesome in this movie because he actually comes up with a really good plan to like get everyone off scot-free relatively. He kind of sacrifices himself to the cops. He probably won't be arrested, but he knows he's going to have to deal with some bullshit. And uh, he also gets an El Camino for a couple hours. He's not going to get to keep that car, which I don't know if Skinny Pete is aware of (laughs) when he says that. (laughs) But um, he does get to keep that. Badger drives off, and and Jesse gets a very good car for the rest of the movie. I love that Jesse has a car with those like flip-up headlights. Mm -hmm. That is such a Vince Gilligan cinematic thing to do in this movie, uh, to play with that lighting on all the city streets and stuff. Um, but yeah, those scenes are great. I think Badger has a scene where I think they're they're standing outside the bathroom as Jesse is getting ready, and Badger just kind of finally breaks down and asks, "Did they really keep you in a cage, dude?" And I love how much that sells. That like, okay, these guys are kind of goofballs, but they really care about Jesse, and their level of horror at what Jesse get, went through, I think, helps sell it to the rest of us. You know that it's it's grounded, it's real. It's it's outrageous because Breaking Bad is a little heightened, but it makes it feel very real for this world and these characters. Yeah, and it's the kind of thing that, like, I think part of the reason why it was hard for me to ever, like, really buy into the, like, the Nazis chained up Jesse thing in the show was that, like, 
it is a it is a heightened thing, but in a different way than Breaking Bad did because this doesn't feel pulpy in the way that like here's like Gus Fring walking out and half of his face is burned off and he like fixes his tie before he dies like that's ridiculous and over the top but in a very like pulpy kind of way um like it's too horrifying the idea of what happens to Jesse um to have that kind of flavor to it um so then kind of yeah like that line from Badger does a good job of sort of like bringing Jesse's experiences into the scope of the world of El Camino in particular because overall El Camino as a movie is less pulpy ridiculous than Breaking Bad usually was at it's at like a more kind of realistic register than Breaking Bad generally operated at because Heisenberg's gone he was the guy who brought that into the show you know yeah exactly because because Walter White thought he was in a pulp novel, kind of, at a certain point, you know? Yeah, he liked playing the weird fucking, like, criminal mastermind mind game bullshit. And Jesse yes. Pinkman's just trying to get out here and, like, live, bitch. Like, I, I don't got time for that shit. Absolutely. I also love all the news reports here. Um, and I love, which also have some nice little uh, Easter eggs. The guy in the, given the, like, police update is the head of the DEA in Breaking Bad at the end. And one of the prosecutors on screen is a fellow prosecutor from Better Call Saul who we see in the courtroom sometimes. Uh, there's one other Better Call Saul cameo. The dude who is like uh, the heavy for all the hookers at the end of the movie. That guy is also mm-hmm. one of a bouncer in uh, Better Call Saul who we've seen several times. So that was kind of fun. But I wanted to mention the news reports because I like there's a moment where they're reporting on Walter White. And they're like, you know, Walter White, the you know after a six months long manhunt, he was found dead in a Nazi compound. Walter White and his partner Jesse Pinkman ran the biggest meth distribution ring in the history of the United States. And I loved that line because I had to think about it for a second. But I'm like... Yeah, no, that actually tracks. Like, if they wrote such a ridiculous story at a certain point that, yes, that would be the impact if these things happened. Because Walt was distributing his stuff in, I think, Croatia at the end of season five. Mm -hmm. Like, he was doing, like, this international meth ring. It's insane. So I like that they kind of uh, put that all into the news reports at the end. Yeah, and it's fun to, like, like the, the just, like, being reminded, like... Walter White with former student Jesse Pinkman. It's like, oh, right. Yeah, that's what they're raising. Like, and of course, that is like how it would be reported in the news. Like, by this point, by the time we got El Camino, the idea that Mr. White was Jesse Pinkman's science teacher is so far in the past. It's like so out of your mind. That's like, right. Okay, yes. That is how their relationship started. That's very weird. Yeah, I love that they they do bring it up again in the scene with Walt where Walt says you could get your GED and then Jesse is incensed like you were on stage when I got my diploma. That's a phenomenal Walter White being a just a dick moment. I loved it. I graduated from high school, bitch. Yeah, that's great. Uh, okay, so then the next, so so again, this is all about the the step by step of the plan of how he's going to get the fuck out of Albuquerque. Is he hides the El Camino with Badger and Skinny Pete? They bring in Joe, the mechanic dude, who I always liked that character when he showed up, and uh, that's a really fun scene with him talking about you guys were my best customers ever. I didn't think that thing with the magnets was going to work, but it did. That was great. And then Joe finds the tracker, so now they know the El Camino is hot. So, uh, yeah, Skinny Pete takes the El Camino, Badger takes Skinny Pete's car, and uh, uh, Jesse drives away with Badger's car. Then Jesse is like, okay, I need some fucking money so I can go. We don't know this yet, but he's going to try to find Ed the Disappearer. So he goes to Todd's apartment. We learn through the flashbacks that Todd has money there. And then you get this long sequence of of him going through the whole apartment trying to find the money, which... uh, 
is very they, they've done a bunch of scenes like this with mike on better call saul where like mike is meticulously tearing something apart looking for something and i like that as someone who has seen all of both shows i think they found a new way to do it here with like the top-down view and jesse like jesse's not an expert at this so unlike mike he doesn't like have a method to the madness he's just tearing shit up um and then it being in the refrigerator was a satisfying i think breaking bad-esque way to wrap it all up mm-hmm yeah, but it's a very good sequence of events. And then you have the two police officers in there and the nosy next door neighbor. It's just that stretch of the movie is just such classic Breaking Bad. It's like Vince Gilligan at his peak writing these crazy tense sequences with all these twists and turns. Um, you know, we meet these two bad guys who worked at the welding company. And I kind of like how we build them up as the sort of pseudo villains of the movie um, in that they keep coming back and they had this association to Todd, which explains why they would know to go to his apartment and look for the money. Um, I think all of that worked very well. And the, the sequence of events in that apartment, just they, they, it's such good uh, like tension example of like twisting the knife and twisting the knife and getting more and more tense until it kind of explodes in the final scene once we know that these guys aren't cops and everything Jesse's trying to do. Yeah, you you in that sequence you have what is one of my favorite like probably like I want like this gif of this shot because it's so good of where the one cop is like looking around in the room and then he goes over to like there's like a bed or something that is um like propped up against the wall and he's looking down under it and you get that shot into like just like pitch blackness and then it and then you hear like a gun click and the camera zooms in and then you sort of like slowly reveal the gun barrel of the pistol and then jesse's face comes in from behind it and it's such a good shot like i just like it's so good someone must have gift that on the internet because it is just like ah it's so good it's just like it's a perfect um kind of breaking bad shot that you know just like that slow buildup of where is Jesse in this room? When are they going to find them? What is going to happen when they find them? And it's like a very unexpected twist on that kind of reveal that Jesse immediately gets the drop on him like that. It's, 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 it's really, really well done. Absolutely. And then I love how they get, because I think this movie very much follows the Breaking Bad ethos of let's write ourselves into a corner and then figure out how to get out of it, which didn't work every time on Breaking Bad. Sometimes they had to come up with kind of things that stretched, you know, logic or whatever. But mostly that's part of the fun of Breaking Bad is like, how do we get out of these impossible scenarios? And I think they did that here with like, the dude's got a gun on Jesse. Jesse's taking the money. How does he get out of this building? Just through sheer force of will. And that's a, and Aaron Paul plays the hell out of that scene. So he gets the money, he gets his third, leaves, and then we get the thing that I was happiest to see. Even before we learned he had died, Robert Forster, Ed the Disappearer, we needed more of him. He's only in one episode of Breaking Bad, but it's such a good episode. And I love that Jesse is just going down the vacuum repair shops in the phone book until he finds Ed's shop. How fucking good is the big scene with Ed, Sean? It's really good. And, like, one thing that was fun about it is someone who, like, it's been a couple of years since I did my Breaking Bad watch through. Like, I couldn't remember. It's like, is that, like, did Robert Forster play that dude? Like, what, I, like, I couldn't quite put in my head. I was like, am I thinking of, because when I'm thinking of Twin Peaks, was when I was that, was that, was it a different dude playing? And, and I was trying to, like, remember how all that stuff worked out at the end of Breaking Bad and couldn't quite put together if, like, is this just a, is just, Robert Forster just look like the guy that they had and Jesse actually found the wrong place, which could be a thing that they would do on Breaking Bad, that Jesse completely has picked the wrong store, he's completely fucked up, and this is just some unassuming vacuum cleaner dude that has no idea why this weird, this 
teenager, quote unquote, has just dumped fucking like $500,000 onto his desk. Um, and so that was a fun way to do it as like my memory being like faulty enough about that sequence from the end of Breaking Bad, trying to remember whether or not that was actually the character. The scene plays really, really well that way and how coy it is with giving information up. And then, you know, once the guy, you kind of like are, yeah, no, this is definitely the guy. This must be the guy. And then that turning and like the way that Robert Forster sort of like turns the lever or whatever that is like, okay, now I'm not just like, you know, the friendly Albuquerque vacuum cleaner salesman, I'm the dude you go to, what to disappear. Um, it's a really, really good switch. Oh, it's so good. It's such a funny scene because, like, Robert, for, like, the, the Ed the Disappear dude, nobody intimidates him, I get the feeling from. Like, Walter White certainly never did. But this is a scenario where, even more than usual, he has all the power in this scene. And he... It's not like, I don't know if he's being sadistic or whatnot, but he is definitely low-key enjoying making this little junky kid twist in the wind while he makes him count out all the money and everything. Because he's got a bone to pick, because there's it's kind of a convoluted plot detail, but Jesse in Breaking Bad almost goes off with him, and that's when he realizes the whole thing about the rice and cigarette and goes back to try to kill Walt, which kind of leads to the end game of the series with Tohaijile and the money in the desert and all that. Um, so that's why Robert Forster is mad at him. Is like, you know, I don't really trust you, kid. And he's like, and so Jesse counts up the money, $125,000. And Ed says, okay, that pays, that's, that pays your debt. Do you have another $125,000? And I love how Jesse just, Aaron Paul plays, he just deflates and he's like, okay, fair's fair. Fair's, please don't give up on me. Let's count out the money. And then it's doing it again. And you can just tell where that scene is going. And I love how far Gilligan pushes it of Jesse. It's like, I don't have enough. Oh, I've got it in this pocket. Oh, uh, not enough. I've got it in this pocket. I'm $1,800 short. I love how far the limit they push it where Robert Forster is just being a fucking dick. But he kind of, he kind of feels like Jesse deserves it. And Jesse is like, where the hell do I get $1,800? And I just love that that is where they push it. It is such a good scene. And one of the funniest things I think Robert Forster ever got to play in life. <laughs> yeah, no, and especially the like the punchline to that scene of him calling the cops, Aaron Paul. Oh, like, God. Yeah, trying to call like like trying to call it as a bluff. And it's like, no, like I know what happens. The, they're the operator was to keep you on the line and all this stuff. And the cops pull up and he just fucking bolts. Uh, very good. <laughs> Because it's the one time Jesse tries to turn the tables and like play up his, you know, Cap and Cook Jesse persona on Robert Forster, and it doesn't work. It just doesn't sell at all. And and Robert Forster has this little tiny shit eating grin. Mm-hmm. And it's so good. So where's he gonna get the eighteen hundred dollars? The next step, of course, is he needs a gun, so he calls his parents out of their house to get the gun. And that is a really good example of how this movie is very procedural in that it is about the steps of Jesse getting out of Albuquerque, but it often ties those procedural steps to character moments. And I think him getting to have that phone call with his parents where he is technically tricking them, but he also knows this is the last time he's ever going to get to call them and there are things he needs to say. Beautiful scene. And Aaron Paul couldn't have played it better. Absolutely. And and in particular... Um, one thing that I, I like about how that this movie kind of deals with that procedure um, is that you don't know at every step what Jesse is doing or why he is doing it. And so the implication is that, oh, he needs $1,800, cut to his parents' house, him calling his parents, 
oh, he must be, he's going to try to steal the money from them because that's something that happened in Breaking Bad was he took money from his parents. And so, like, you think that this is going to happen again and that's how this sequence is going to play out and the reveal that, no, he's doing it to get a couple of guns and then actually he's going to steal it from the guys, the welder guys from earlier in the movie. Like, that's a good... It, it's it's a good way to like keep the tension and like the interest in the scenes high is you're always sort of interested in what is Jesse doing right now and why is he doing it? And you see like the problem that he has to solve is you know what that problem is and you can see the steps that he's starting to take, but you don't get access to his reasoning early on. And I think that that is one thing that like keeps the movie interesting throughout is trying to kind of figure out what is Jesse's plan actually? Like what is his like ultimate goal um, that he's trying to accomplish here in that reveal of, oh, he's not going to steal money from his parents. He's just stealing these like old guns that they don't really need. It, it, it keeps you kind of like, it, it keeps you rooting for Jesse more that he's not resorting to steal from his parents, um, or at least like not taking money, but taking something that they don't really need anymore. Um, that's nice. That's a nice detail. It's also character development, right? Because Jesse yeah. of seasons one or two would have ripped off his parents without a second thought. It is the... It is the approach of least resistance, right? But here it's like he's going after Todd's money for a reason. It's because it's Todd's money. Like, Jesse, like, it doesn't belong to anyone. It's dirty money. And if anyone on Earth has a right to that money, it's the dude Todd tortured, you know? Okay, if anyone on Earth has a right to it, it's the people who did, did the meth and, like, you know, probably died from it. But... Within the world of Breaking Bad, where we maybe don't want to think about all those larger implications because it's fiction, um, it's it's Jesse, and so I I like that it's always kept on that. He's going to take the dirty money that the Nazi piece of shit who tortured him had, and if the if the people he's going to have to knock off for that are the Nazi adjacent welders, that's okay. The world doesn't need those people, you know. Yes. So we get the final scene where he goes to the welding place and has a standoff, and Sean. When I realized they were going to end this movie with just a full-on high noon western duel scene, I just about got out of my chair and started applauding in my living room. That final scene is so fucking stupidly good, and you can just hear Vince Gilligan cackling at his keyboard while he wrote it. It's fantastic, and it is the most justified thing that Breaking Bad has ever done. It is so, like, if you really like that scene, you should fucking watch Justified, because Justified does that kind of scene a lot, and it is very good. Like, the neo-Western, like, yeah, gunfighter standout, um, or standoff and, like, shootout, it's a, mm, it's a, it's a particular kind of art, and, and Justified does it excellently, and this is another really good one, and that, like, because, you know, the... I like the way that the audience basically knows how Jesse's going to get out of this. Like, cause you saw him take two guns, um, but and you don't, aren't confirmed. Like you don't see him put the revolver in the pocket, um, but you know that he has another gun. And so I think that the way that they, again, that like tension of like, how much does the audience know? How much does Jesse know? How much does this other guy, the other guy in the scene that he's going to shoot, how much does that guy character know? Um, like the, the tension between all of those is really well maintained. And I think the audience has given just the right amount of information to know that Jesse has the upper hand. Because at this point in the movie, you want Jesse to have the upper hand. Um, and you, you, you want, like, you know that he's going to survive and win. Of course he is. Um, so like giving you just that little bit of extra, like, 
this guy is fucked. Like the whole time throughout that scene and it getting set up, you see that he's made this mistake of focusing on this one dumb little bullshit gun that Jesse has like shoved into the front of his pants. And you know, it's like, you're fucked, dude. You, you have no idea what you're doing. You're going to get fucking shot and it's going to be great. And the, then like building that anticipation for you, like knowing how Jesse's going to win is, is a great um, like storytelling device in that scene. Love it. And I'll admit, I, for a couple of seconds there, the sleight of hand with the little twenty-two he's got is so effective that by the time he fires from the hip with the other gun, I'd kind of forgotten it was there. And so it makes this this great just moment of like, it made sense to me immediately. It's not like I was like, where the hell did he get that other gun? It was just like, the the, the, the cinematic language is so precise that like it, it's this effective sleight of hand. Like, look over here. Bang! Then it goes off over there, um, and then of course he has to do the shootout with the with the other welder dude, and then he has the three guys he threatens with their driver's licenses, which is great. Very, this is most Walter White esque moment ever, probably. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, then he blows the whole fucking place up because hey, this is a movie and we've got the money, and that's how it should end. God damn it! Yeah, blow it up. Go to Alaska. Blow it up. Go to Alaska. He's got the final scene with... Because I think he blows it up. We get the scene with Walt. Then we have him arriving in Alaska. We have the last scene with Robert Forster, who I love that moment too, where he's like having him recite all the the stuff Jesse's had to learn. And like, it's a little moment, but again, talking about like the character arc, Jesse had moment after moment after moment in Breaking Bad where he could have got away. It happened over and over again where he had an off-ramp and he never took it. And I think there is something about having those two minutes or so where Robert Forster is just quizzing him on all this stuff and you can tell Jesse's worked on it and is committed to this and he's going to make an effort at living this new life. I like that they sell that. Mm -hmm. Because I think at the end of Breaking Bad, if you asked me what's the most likely thing that happens to Jesse, the most likely thing that happens to Jesse at the end of Breaking Bad with what we know is he goes and smokes some meth and gets arrested and spends the rest of his life in jail. And because we get to see El Camino and get to see him kind of grow over these two hours, I think he has a very good shot of making this work in Alaska, you yeah. know? But I wouldn't have... Because Vince Gilligan always said that his in his mind, Jesse escaped to Alaska, but he said maybe that was kind of wishful thinking. And I would have said that was wishful thinking, but now we've gotten to see Gilligan and Paul go through step by step to that point where I think Jesse is emotionally ready to escape to Alaska. And I think that's really important. Yeah, and it's it's the kind of ending that I think Jesse needs. Like, I think the show... I think Breaking Bad feels too cruel if you don't have some of this. Like, it's it's hard to... Like, it's something that I feel like sometimes Breaking Bad had a hard time balancing, like, just how malicious Walt's relationship to Jesse becomes over the course of that show. And, like, sometimes, like, it's a little bit it pushes it a little bit too far. And that's part of like where the, like him being chained up by Nazis and tortured, like that's so far that the show can't even really do anything with it. And so I think like the character is in a weird, like kind of owed that it's not, this is not a happy ending, but like a happier ending. He's, he's owed a like second chance or like an, a, a chance at life um, by the show. And I, th- I feel like, you know, following Jesse and like seeing him be kind of like rehabilitate himself and go from the place of where he's not able to sort of act against the people that are hurting him within the the flashback scene with Todd to him being able to stand up for himself 
um, against, you know, these welder guys and sort of do what needs to be done in this kind of old fashioned West, like old West kind of way. Like that's such a satisfying character arc to go on and to end in this place where it's like, I'm not, I'm not saying that Jesse Pinkman is like an A plus upstanding good dude, but he is someone that like has fought for and deserves a chance at like a good life and that like try to get a good life. And I'm glad that the that that's where Breaking Bad leaves him off, at least for now with El Camino. Who knows if they want to do something with these characters at some point in the future or not. But this is, for me, a much more satisfying place to leave Jesse Pinkman than just driving off into the night, like, screaming and slapping the steering wheel of his car. I completely agree. You know, because Breaking Bad, part of what makes it great, but also I think one of the challenges they had making the show is that Breaking Bad often gets lumped in with the other big, like, anti-hero shows of the 2000s. It's not. Walter White isn't an anti-hero. He's a villain. Like, he is a bad, bad dude. Like, Al Swearingen on Deadwood is an anti-hero, you yes, know? Yeah. Like, like uh, John Hamm on Mad Men is an anti-hero. Walter White is a fucking monster. Like, even, like, compared to, like, I, I know I haven't seen the whole show, but, like, Tony Soprano. It's a different level of, like, villainy that Walter White has than relatively small-time New Jersey mobster. You know, Walter White kills, like, hundreds of people over the course of this show. He is bad to the bone. And so part of that is if you're going to recognize that. And I think Breaking Bad, to its credit, 100% knows this. Yes. And so that's why the end of Breaking Bad, and Ozymandias in particular, is so dark. And that's why it hits so hard. The problem is... Jesse is sort of our anti-hero equivalent on Breaking Bad. He is a guy who has done bad things, but you root for to get better, which is kind of how I view an anti-hero, more or less, whether they do or not, and different shows have different approaches to that. But, like, I think all that being said, yes, Jesse falls on that side of the line so much more, and it is such a dark ending if the last we see of him is dirty from six months of torture by Nazis, Having this where it is not the happiest ending Jesse Pinkman could have ever had, but he has a shot. Yes, I think that's where we needed to go. And so, yeah, I, you know, maybe El Camino isn't the most quote unquote essential thing in the world. But goddamn, if now that I've seen it, I wouldn't want to live in a world without it, you know? Yeah, like if I ever watched Breaking Bad again, I would absolutely like finish the show and then watch El Camino. Like I, it's... I would not you know separate what? them out, you know, like they, they are of a piece to me now. I was thinking about this a lot. I think the closest analog I have for it, actually, and this may be a little weird, but is Last of Us Left Behind is what it feels like to mm-hmm. me. Because it actually has a very similar structure as Last of Us Left Behind with the flashback versus present day story. It's very small scale. Like, that's important. Like, El Camino has is relatively low stakes and very small scale. It's, it's one night, basically, in Jesse's life. But... Um, and just like like left behind, like like it's a and and we also kind of know ultimately where El Camino is going to go, unless you think they're going to shoot Jesse in the head, which they probably aren't. So I think it has that similar quality where like La- Last of Us was perfectly fine on its own, but goddamn, Left Behind is so good. I it's, it has to be part of the experience. I feel that way about El Camino now that we've seen it. Yeah, I think that is a good equivalent. That it is it is it's not something that like you know if you you experience the original thing and you don't do this edition like that you're like missing out on something crucial it's not essential in that way but it's like but it's you know it is a fantastic edition like it, it is something that yes. like 
it it does answer some questions. It does give resolutions and kind of fix problems I had with the show that were not gaping problems, but things that the show could have done better. Um, and and this movie does them better. And it you know, and and if mm-hmm. nothing else, like it is also just like fun to spend more time with these characters. It's fun to spend more time in this universe with this kind of visual language, um, with this kind of like tense crime fiction kind of story that Breaking Bad did really well. El Camino does all of that stuff fantastically. And it also has a bunch of really great gags in there that are, are fun in the way that Breaking Bad could be very funny as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, the Vince Gilligan Albuquerque televisual universe has gotten bigger and I love all of it. I There's three prongs to it now and I think they're all pretty fucking great so and this also for me i have to say was a very nice holdover because we're not getting better call saul this year it's not coming back until next year um so i kind of had a gap year here so getting this was like a a very nice treat um if you like me have maybe been starved for vagatu material in the last year yeah and then you know after better call saul who knows maybe the badger skinny pete duo series can finally get off the ground and we can see what happens to them as they build their criminal uh empire i think they should just go full like a breaking bad sequel breaking zeta bad i don't know what you'd call it um and it's about walt jr as an adult so fucked up from what his dad did that he decides to become a meth kingpin and they kind of just redo the series but with walt jr (laughs) no it has to be where you have some plucky new meth manufacturer who like runs into jesse pinkman and like it's like doing stuff with jesse pinkman (laughs) and then he goes down to albuquerque and spends time with walt jr or skyler or whoever and like learns the philosophies of both of the sides of the previous conflict or whatever and then has to synthesize them in some way and then everybody dies at the end there's nothing we can't bring back to gundam guys no it's not All right. So I think that's it for this week. Very, very good movie we got to talk about uh, and a lot of interesting news. So this was a fun one. And we'll be back next week with either Weekly Suit Gundam or more of this. Depends on what happens. I don't know. It's a busy time of the year, but we'll have more soon. Yeah. 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 <laughs>